you're about to hear sounds like an advertisement, but NFJC does not accept any financial support for promotion. We are entirely funded by donations from our users. Arcana asked to advertise, and the members of Freely Filtered are airing this promotion without compensation because they believe in Arcana's mission. Before we get to the main Freely Filtered episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about ApoL1 and ApoL1 testing. And I'll tell you, this comes up all the time. Just today, I saw a patient in the hospital with an acute kidney injury, and as I'm talking to him, turns out his sister's on dialysis, his maternal uncle died of kidney failure recently, he's got heavy proteinuria in addition to this uh, kidney disease. And I said, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, when we get you out of the hospital, I need you to come to my clinic because I think we need to test you for this one particular gene. And And it just requires a different filter in terms of the way we're thinking about this. Uh, tonight I have uh, Chris Larson from Arcana and I got Dr. Olibisi uh, Opie from Duke University in Raleigh and we're going to be talking a little bit about ApoL1. Chris, tell me a little bit about this uh, Vertex Arcana uh, ApoL1 testing. Sure. So we at Arcana Labs are working together with Vertex Pharmaceuticals uh, to increase awareness of ApoL1 mediated kidney disease And the main way we're going about this is we're trying to decrease the barriers to testing. So specifically, Vertex is sponsoring the the ApoL1 genotyping, as well as genetic counseling to patients who turn out to be positive. All of that's at no cost to patients. The patient meets eligibility criteria, they can be tested. So what it is, is it's a buckle swab, so it can easily be performed in a clinician's office. And it also includes the shipping, everything's included. You can easily find more information on it, uh, Googling just ApoL1 and Arcana, A-R-K-A-N-A to find out. And what is the eligibility broadly? What are, what are, what are we, who are we looking at? That's a good question. So it's patients of African ancestry who have non-diabetic CKD. Diabetes, dialysis, and transplant are excluded. Okay. Well, Bessie, you, you've made ApoL1 your entire life. Why, do you, why yes. don't you give me the 20,000 foot view? What, what, what are your views on this? Yeah, so the, the best way I think for clinicians uh, and the audience to understand this is to take one step back and say, what do we know in the US? We know that African-Americans are about three to four times more likely to develop end-stage kidney disease. And the number to help with that is that black people represent about 13% of US population. If you look at patients on dialysis, depending on where you are in the country, they represent about 31 to 35% of people on dialysis. So that's a really high number. And for a long time, the uh, underpinning of it has not really been clear. In 2010, Martin Pollack and and others identified that there's a mutation in ApoL1 gene that actually explains a lot of this excess risk of kidney disease in African-American. It doesn't explain all of it but explain a significant amount of it. A lot of work went into that. Not just Martin, but a lot of people worked towards that. Now, if you think of what I just described, the excess burden of kidney disease in African-American, for a long time, we said, okay, how do we correct this kidney disease disparity? We didn't know what the biological factor was. Now, we, not, we do, right? So that's really one of the areas that I focus on. When I see a patient that has FSGS, that is self-identified African-American. Do you guess how many of those patients, idiopathic FSGS, will have two copies of ApoL1? On average, 
70%. 7 in 10 of all black patients that have idiopathic FSGS will have two risk well. That is insanely high. So if you see a patient with FSGS that is self-identified African-American or Caribbean-American or from Brazil, from South America, but the origin of this gene is from West Africa and it travels along the African slave trade to West Africa, to America, to the Caribbean, to South America. So, so it's not just African-American. I would say most people in the U.S. that will have this will be African-American, but I want us as clinicians to open our frame even wider. So that's where I focus the attention mostly. Do you self-identify as African-American or Black? Do you have FSGS or do you have a spectrum of disease that fall under the umbrella of a poor one? This includes kidney disease that we previously attributed to high blood pressure. Yeah. So hypertension attributed CKD in a black person should not just be, I'm not here to vindicate high blood pressure, not by any stretch, but I'm here to say that there's a lot of rethinking that the poor one has a lot of role to play in there. Yeah, that's a, that is a, that is a, a, a kind of a sea change in the way we start thinking about hypertensive kidney disease. So my question is, how much proteinuria do you need to see before you start thinking, I, I better look for APOL1? You know, is it? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Initially, when this whole thing started, the people were thinking, could this be nephritic range proteinuria since we are talking FSGS? But it turns out that's actually not the case. Proteinuria can be in the subnephrotic range, 300 milligram, 500 milligram. I think for vertex studies, uh, requirement is around 700 to 500 milligram. In other studies, it's even lower than that. So don't let low-level proteinuria discourage you. In fact, it turns out that if an African-Americans have a poor one and kidney disease, even with low-grade proteinuria, they still progress more rapidly. So even with low-level proteinuria... You, there's still fast progression. So wh- why is this genotyping helpful to the clinician? One, if you have a patient that have this genotype and have the spectrum of kidney disease we are talking about, they will be eligible to participate in ongoing clinical trial. Remember, I said one of the impediments before is we don't know the biological driver. Another impediment is that there was no specific treatment. Another impediment was that African-Americans are significantly underrepresented in clinical trial. Even though 30 to 35% on dialysis, less than 5% in therapeutic trial. And this is where we come in as clinicians. So how do we identify people who are eligible with genotype? Without genotype, that diagnosis is not complete. Excellent. Chris, is there anything that you wanted to add? No, he nailed it. He really did. That's exactly right. It's a genetic disease, and you you can't know if somebody has it unless you do the test to find out whether or not they have two risk alleles. When they think of APOL1, they tend to think of FSGS, but we should not have uh, an African-American diagnosed with hypertension-attributed kidney disease unless they've been genotyped, unless they've had APOL1 genotyping. Only then should you you diagnose them with hypertension-mediated kidney disease. And if I can piggyback on that, the significance is even higher. It turns out that having the high-risk APOL1, that is two copies of APOL1, not only increases the risk of the kidney disease, but it's also an accelerant. What mm. do I mean by that? If you look at two African-Americans with chronic kidney disease, non-diabetic, one has two copies of APOL1, one has normal variant, G0, G0. Who gets to dialysis first? 
on average, African Americans with two risk capable well one arrive at dialysis about seven to ten years earlier. So if you have such a patient and you know their genotype, it helps you with your care planning. Oh, you know, that's it helps right. you to know that this is a patient. Yeah, yeah, that timing for that access, all of that can be adjusted given the fact that they have the right. two risk alleles. That is super interesting. Right. I'm curious your thoughts too on because I'm a pathologist, I don't I don't see the patients, but what does it mean to the patients when they find out that they have they don't have hypertension. They have instead this APOL1-mediated kidney disease. What does that mean for a patient? That's a great question. In, and I found this to be surprising. So now with genotype in my, in my research group, maybe over 300, 400 uh, patients and, and individuals in the community. For patients that have, say, FSGS or many of them carry all sort of labels. Some, some of them even have this old uh, analgesic nephropathy. So, well, maybe they took too much NSAIDs and whatnot, right? So there's a lot of self-blame in patients. And what I found surprising, and maybe shouldn't be surprising, was that when a patient actually now finds out that there's this genetic component to their disease, it reduces the self-blame significantly. I get a lot of sense of relief. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's it. That is interesting. That's good. I'm glad glad to hear that. If you kind of take a look at the history of diagnostic nephrology, we went from urine electrolytes and fractional excretion of everything to point of point of care ultrasound to actually kind of being able to look inside the body instead of just our physical exam and squeezing the ankles and actually getting a sense of real sense of volume status. And we're now just walking into this genetic revolution where we're going to be able to take a look at really what these are and it's it's going to cha- it's going to take our nephrologists to retrain themselves to start using these new mm-hmm. tools because they're really going to open up a lot of possibilities absolutely yeah. and i think most of the patients oftentimes look to us for guidance because most patients have developed a sense of trust a, a, you know therapeutic relationship with their clinician and i think this is where the onus is on us as clinician when they look to us and say well should i really do this testing i think for a patient that has kidney disease uh, that's an african-american or have recent african ancestry i should clarify that we should encourage them to I think there's a lot of upside, especially with the CKD population, uh, mm-hmm. to begin to turn the tide uh, towards, uh, towards improvement. That's excellent. Hey, thanks both of you guys for joining us. I'm looking forward uh, to seeing what this develops going forward. Awesome. Yeah, Thank thanks, you for having Joel. us. Thanks, Hope. Yeah, I appreciate you guys taking the time for this. See, we'll see you at the ASN. Is, does that comport with your experience, AC? Oh, you do pediatrics. They're all living. I do both. I hey, cradle to grave. I, I see everybody, okay? I don't only see kids. You can't just neglect nephrologist. This whole point of med feeds is that nobody can. I'm not going to put you in a box. In many Let her on the box. Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent FJC journal clubs. FJC is an online site for post-publication peer review that provides summaries, visual abstracts, interactive chats, newsletters, and podcasts 
on the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, this isn't the place to find answers. We suggest bringing up ChatGPT or your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications, but not tonight. We have something special. Dr. Amit Garg, friend of the podcast, rang us up about a month ago and said, I'm going to be giving a session at ASN's late-breaking and high-impact clinical trials. I am going to have simultaneous publication in JAMA Internal Medicine, and I also want a simultaneous release of Freely Filtered. Can you make it happen? And Swap says, I don't know, we'll see if we can make it happen. No, we said yes, we'll do it. We're excited. We're really excited. This is, this is new ground for us. We're excited to be here. This should be awesome. My name is Joel Toff. I'm Kidney Boy on Twitter. No relevant conflicts of interest for tonight. Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramad. I'm a nephrologist, epidemiologist at the Ottawa Hospital, University of Ottawa. I tweet at H Swapnil. Uh, same thing on Blue Sky and Med Mastodon. In terms of disclosures, I'm not a transplant nephrologist. I'm a dialyzer, and our site was one of the centers which was in this study. Though I was not involved in any way, apart from referring people for transplants. Maybe I was one of the the subjects or participants in that. Do you, do you know if you were part of the control group or the intervention group? I don't. You don't know. I was going to ask Ahmed. Control group. Sophia. Hi, everybody. I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm a clinical educator and nephrologist at the University of Colorado in the Denver VA. I tweet or post at, at Sophia. I don't have any conflicts of interest. I am not on Med Mastodon yet or Blue Sky, but I probably ought to be. I'm a slow adopter. I was a slow adopter of Twitter also. Um, Anyways, excited to be here tonight. Excellent. AC. Hey, everybody. I'm AC. I'm a MedPeds Nephrology Fellow at Brigham, Mass General, and Boston Children's. I tweet at, at MedPeds Kidneys, and I have no relevant conflicts of interest to disclose. And we have two special guests tonight. First, we have a returning guest. Dr. Amit Garg. Welcome back, Amit. Thanks, Joel. Uh, this is Amit Garg. I'm a nephrologist for the last 20 years here in London, Ontario, Canada. And I, my Twitter handle is uh, at AmitXGarg. And Joel, at the beginning, you said the order, but it was actually reversed. First, I wanted to make sure the Freely Filtered was available. And then we did the other things. You know, that was the number one priority. <laughs> As it, should, as it should be. I'm sure that went down exactly like that. <laughs> And, 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 and the other special guest is uh, Susan McKenzie. Uh, Susan Amit sent us an email. It says, we need to have Susan on this podcast. And I was like, I don't know who she is, but if Amit wants her, she's there. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks. It's nice to be here. I'm Susan McKenzie, and I am a patient partner. Uh, who's in, uh, involved in this research in terms of uh, developing and implementing one of the pillars, but certainly involved in, in um, the, the entire research um, study um, as well. So I'm thrilled to be here. There's some exciting things that we're, we're doing that we did as part of the research study and are continuing, but we're certainly expanding off of that as well. So fairly large uh, kind of patient initiative. So excited to be here and talk to you about it tonight. I'm a kidney transplant recipient uh, from a living donor in 2010. I'm continuing to do well. Excellent. That's a, that's that's an awesome story. I, I love that. Amit was last here with MyTem, a ginormous pragmatic trial that definitively answered an important question and erased some dogma from the field. 
and I and I, it was a great trial, and it was definitive. And he's back again with another pragmatic trial. Once you've done one, you can do like a million of them, right? Well, you know, and it's funny because the last time he was here, it was kind of, when he was talking about how he came up with the idea, he just wanted to do a pragmatic trial. This was a good question that lended itself to a pragmatic trial. Like he had this toy and he wanted to use it. And so now he's turned his focus away from dialysis to the probably the most important therapy that we have in nephrology, which is kidney transplant and getting more people to transplant. This is a field that is beset with all kinds of biases and trying to institutionalize how we get people from advanced chronic kidney disease, whether on dialysis or not, to transplant and through the process better is an important issue that we all struggle with. Abit, what else what, what else do you want to say about setting this up? What, what, what was it that intrigued you about this problem? Yeah, thanks, Joel. Well, as you said, transplant is one of the best interventions in medicine. For transplant-eligible people, it improves life expectancy. Some people will live 10 or more years of additional life. It improves quality life. Every 100 kidney transplants in my jurisdiction saves the healthcare system about $20 million over the first five years, predominantly because of... Wait, slow, slow down. So 100, you said 100 transplants in five years saves $20 million? Correct, to the Canadian healthcare system, predominantly from averted dialysis costs, because the cost of dialysis is about $100,000. And, 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 and like, how rare is that that we see in medicine that something that is not only cost-effective, but also better? Right, it's it's just like it's better for the patients. They live longer, they live better, they live happier, and it's cheaper. It's a it's the triple win. Exactly right, and and that's partly because dialysis is so expensive and not that great of a therapy. Right, high mortality, lots of hospitalizations, yeah, yeah, exactly. all kind of costs everywhere. But I can't tell you how often I hear from mm-hmm. patients who are like, I don't want to have to deal with the burden of being transplanted, and they think that the duration of immunosuppressive meds and the risk of infection and all of that, they actually think that that might outweigh a lifetime on dialysis. And it's a really strange misunderstanding of what the true outcomes are and where it comes from. I don't exactly know, but I think that's a widespread belief. So Sophia, one thing that kind of alters the perception for people who are on dialysis, let's say in-center hemodialysis, is guess what a kind of transplant experience they see firsthand. They see people who failed kidney transplant, which is the minority, and they're back in the dialysis unit. So they might get a skewed perspective of what yeah. really the outcomes are. Yeah, I think that's exactly true. I was gonna... Well, and no doubt there are a couple, you know, horror stories amongst the millions of success stories. And the, the horror stories are oftentimes what are out front and center and what gets publicized a little bit more so. Mm-hmm. And apart from that, we also see all these discrepancies on who gets listed who gets a transplant uh, of all the people who might be transplant eligible, right? I've seen most of, more of those papers from the US, of course, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's Canadian data out there as well showing that, you know, if you are of a certain gender or a certain socioeconomic background, you are less likely listed. to get transplanted or, or you know, get, you get waitlisted later and so on and so forth. Uh, so those kind of things, there are existing barriers that uh, uh, we need to overcome apart from the, you know, the health literacy or perhaps this misunderstanding that you alluded to, uh, Sophia. AC, what, what do you see in the pediatric world? I know that they have a very high transplant rate in pediatrics. We do. We see a lot of transplants in pediatrics. We see a lot of them go very well. And I think we do a lot more preemptive transplants in pediatrics. But I think you still see these kind of 
difficulties in transplants. So the way that I often describe transplants from from our perspective, at least, is kind of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And I think that that is really difficult, especially when you have people kind of go back to the dialysis unit after a failed transplant, either in the long term or especially if it's kind of acute, is it's it's really difficult, right? Like your hopes are so high for kind of coming off of dialysis and this life you've been promised. And then on the rare times where something does go wrong, it's really, really, really difficult for people. Hey, see, what do you attribute the high rate of transplant in pediatrics? Like why is there such success? there. My, my real real question is, what do we learn from the high success rate that we can apply to the adults? That's a really good question. I think part of it is how much they kind of get prioritized. So it's how quick that we're able to get them to transplant. <laughs> we are very, very lucky in that way. And I think people oftentimes do really well. Kids oftentimes do really well because a lot of times they have living donors, and if they don't have living donors, they get prioritized for the absolute best of the best deceased donors. Do you think there's also a component of, I mean, I advocate more for my child than I do for myself. And so there is there is a different mm-hmm. level of motivation. And I do think, you know, uh, some things that I want to bring up later about the motivation of, of people to go seek resources. But I think that there is a different level of motivation and things you're willing to do for a child that you never would have done for yourself as well. I absolutely agree with that. I think that's very true. We see a lot of family members coming forward, siblings, parents, aunts, uncles, to come forth and, and be evaluated to be living donors and a very high motivation to do that. So I but I think there's a there's a bias there that we need to be careful with is that people with young children are younger, right. right? Like a lot of the patients that we need to get transplants are older. So A, their parents are not on the board, right? And their brothers and sisters already have hypertension, obesity, diabetes, you know, the kind of the diseases of chronic chronic age. Chronic, chronic aging. Did I actually it's say that? It's the aging that's not <laughs> acute. It's the one that comes on all the time. That that aging that I'm talking about. So depending on the day, it can feel pretty sometimes. acute. The aging process. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. Susan, can you tell us about your transplant journey? Yeah, sure, I can. I mean, I could just add to that last comment as well that I think if you're the person on dialysis waiting for transplant or pre-transplant, that you're also sick and tired, and it's hard to advocate for yourself. But if you're advocating as a parent for your child, you're usually not sick and tired. And I've had both of those experiences advocating for myself, which I thought I was doing a decent job, but I wasn't doing half as good a job as I could when I had to advocate for my daughter. So that's because I was feeling better, you know, because I had been transplanted by then. So, but my experience was that I knew that there was kidney disease in my family. I've just learned two years ago that we had the MUC1 gene, but most of my life, I didn't know that. My dad had had a kidney transplant early in 1975, which he had for 31 years. I had seen him on home dialysis. Um, when I- Susan, that sound in the background is all of us looking up <laughs> Muck 1, okay? Okay? Like, and, and hats off to whichever doctor made that diagnosis. Well, well played, and we think that's awesome. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. No, not at all. But it was Dr. Dr. Dervla Connaughton in, in London, and she's amazing. We had been in genetic testing for in a well over a decade. And um, she she found it when she came to Canada. And that was really, really exciting for us. Uh, we wanted to understand what it was. My dad had it. He was from a family of uh, four boys. They all had a kidney failure. And my grandfather as well. So I just got tested all the time. We didn't know what it was, but I just, as a young person, yeah. just yeah. tested um, in my mid-20s and saw my kidneys a decline. And so I, I asked my GP, I said, you know, we have this strong history in the family. Can you send me um, 
to a specialist. And it took me five years to convince him to send me to a specialist because he didn't think there was anything wrong. He said, your, your kidney function is okay. And, you know, it was, it was okay, but it was going up every year. It was still, you know, under 100. And he said, you know, he said, your kidney function is great. You know, 80-year-old ladies have this kidney function. They do well, I'm like, yeah, but I'm not 80 years old. So I finally went to the nephrologist after about literally five years of asking him many times to send me. And my first visit to the nephrologist, he said, yeah, you have chronic kidney disease and um, you're going to be coming back every every year. Your kidneys will fail someday. And so at one point I went to see him and he said, you know, you know, that's when they give you the, you should start finding a donor, but no one in your family can get tested because this is an unknown genetic cause. So at that time, that was a real, dis no, very a big disadvantage, not being able to test anybody, which is why uh, I had a few donors come forward, but none of them family members. And um, it was my sister's, uh, my sister-in-law, my husband's sister, who ended up being a match, as well as one of my old friends from uh, primary school for both matches. And um, yeah. You got one of each? She's on the no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I know we don't do that. <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, so and then I had my transplant. Um, well, we tried to do preemptive, but the workup process took much longer than expected. I think my donor actually took about 14 months to be worked up based on her note taking that she kept. When I went on dialysis, that kind of delayed everything further. So I was there for about 11 months and then had the transplant in 2010. And uh, yeah. It's, it was just changed my life. I didn't want to go on dialysis in the first place, but I had, I know, I did. And um, uh, and then when my daughter, she needed a transplant five years after me, and she was able to get a preemptive living donor transplant. And how, how old was she? He when she was uh, twenty nine. She was twenty nine, yeah. and the muck one. And how and how old were you? I ended when up you getting ended my transplant forty three. So hers was yeah, much more aggressive. Much aggressive. She was actually the same age as my dad when he had his transplant, his baby too as well. And so for you, in terms of like getting engaged with the transplant system, it was, it was your nephrologist who recognized where this was headed and started the workup in advance, but almost made it yeah. 11 months. Yeah. Not quite. So, so is this a good time to talk about how the referral process works in in Ontario versus the U.S.? Yeah, I think we need to familiarize people because yeah. that's going to be important and, for this for this trial. And maybe I can talk a little bit about the barriers to access the yeah, transplant. Sure. Too. Yeah, go ahead. So, I've had the fortune of working with Sue now for the better part of seven years now, Sue. So, her story is not not unique, and the patients who we care for prompt us to do better in terms of healthcare professionals. And so there are many barriers uh, to transplant. And the unfortunate reality is many eligible patients will never receive a kidney transplant. That is the unfortunate reality. And why is that? These barriers exist at the patient level, the family level, the health professional level, and the health system level. At patients' levels, uh, you heard Susan describe, you're going to a clinic where you're hearing about one of your vital organs failing. Any of us would be in denial. We have difficult processing the information. We might lack the uh, knowledge exactly of what are the actual benefits of transplant versus dialysis. In-center hemodialysis to the catheter is the path of least resistance. You don't have to think about it much. If, whenever it happens, we'll just do that. And outside the donor, the transplant recipient has to complete sometimes a year of appointments and tests uh, to be evaluated. That's time and money. Sometimes some people have to make lifestyle changes. They might have to lose some weight or stop smoking. And people can be very conflicted about living kidney donor transplant. The study we're talking about didn't, uh, one of the solutions wasn't increasing the number of deceased organ donors, which is also a very important area, but we didn't just look at that. But when you think about living kidney donor transplant, any of us who have taken care of patients with kidney disease realize that they're quite conflicted. They're, fairly, they're very uneasy about it. They don't want to subject their family members to any potential harm. They're hesitant to make people feel pressured about it. What if they put this out there and no one comes forward? 
How are they going to feel about that? That could leave them quite disappointed. Will they feel guilt after this person goes through this process, making them inconvenienced and putting at risk? Some people even feel they don't deserve their kidney. Like, I, will, I don't deserve my child's kidney. They should live their own life. And they can fear for the future health of the donor. And also, sometimes when people donate, uh, there could be the feeling that you're now going to be indebted to this person for the rest of your life. And some people have strong aversions to that. And finally, people with kidney failure may not understand that many donors benefit from that process and feel good about donating. Mm-hmm. So that's at the patient level. When we talk at the extended family or friend level, a lot of them lack awareness. How many times have people come to your clinic and it's only them, no family members, no additional people? They may lack knowledge how they can support. They may lack knowledge about the opportunity of living donation. And those donor candidates have to go sometimes through a year of testing. And several of them will not be eligible to donate a kidney. Some estimates are out of every five, four will likely not be eligible. When we talk about the health professionals, including frontline nurses and um, physicians, there might be some lack of understanding of the benefits of transplant or or the process and eligibility of transplant. You know, it's actually quite complicated and challenging to really outline the survival advantage of trans. Because if you do, then you have to describe the survival, anticipate survival with dialysis. And that's actually a very hard thing to do with someone in clinic, to say that your chance of survival, median survival, is four years. Uh, although that's what the statistics suggest, that's a very hard thing to convey. And so if you want to really convey the benefits of transplant, you also convey the reality of dialysis. And then finally, the healthcare system, as you said, Joel, this is a dominant therapy. It's the trifecta of what you want in an intervention. And so the system should be designed to maximize this, but it's not. Um, as Swapnil said, um, there are disparities. So for example, if someone's female or older of low income, they're less likely to get a transplant. That's what the data shows. And some of our system has a misaligned financial incentive. I would say no health professionals operate this way. But the way it's disorganized is that whenever a CKD program has someone receive a transplant, that's often lost income for the program and the health professionals involved. And I'm not saying people practice this way, but we haven't aligned the financial systems. And then finally, in terms of public awareness, we have, you know, advanced public awareness campaigns around the opportunity for deceased organ donation. But there is still very limited um, work in making sure the public's aware about the opportunity of living kidney donation. So these are all barriers at different levels that we could address with intervention. If I may ask just um, briefly, in the United States, there's a we, we know the disparities across socioeconomic status and, and race, those exist no matter what. But being in a universal healthcare system, how does that differ from availability of healthcare and payment and medications long term? And how are the does that does that even the playing field a little bit or not? Uh, I'm sure it does. And Amit can chime in with more details. So uh, some things are covered and some things are not covered. So yes, if you need to have, you know, investigations done, uh, a CT scan or what have you, no one has to pay for that. Uh, but medications are not. Uh, so we don't have universal pharmacare in Ontario uh, or in Canada. Uh, medications are covered once you are 65 or older. Uh, when If you're below 65, then medication coverage it, it's kind of, it depends. Uh, so pe- some people have employer-provided uh, drug coverage, and then uh, there are other programs for people who are, you know, like like Medicaid kind of a thing for really poor people. There is, uh, if they are off work, then there is uh, something called ODSP, which supports them. And for those people in the middle, say, who may be, you know, working at a Walmart or what have you, where they don't have employer-covered insurance and they are working, they need to find some insurance. So we do have programs where, you know, in the as part of the transplant evaluation, we refer them and we make sure they will have some coverage for their uh, transplant medications because that's the big thing, right? Dialysis is covered, but what about those transplant medications? 
And there is a program the province uh, runs, which is kind of a low cost insurance program for these people. But the pills are cheaper, right? That you, you have some kind of price control. You don't have the same outrageous prices that we have in the United States, right? Yeah, yeah we don't. But uh, but Acrolimus and Mycophenolate, I think they are still pricey. It will be a few hundred dollars. Uh, Amit may know more a month uh, or, or maybe a few thousand dollars, which oh. will add up right to anyone's okay. Uh, cost. Okay. okay. Yeah. Also, there are the costs the patients and families bear, right? If you're a donor candidate, I have to go for the testing. Who's looking after my kid? Uh, I have to be off work. I'm going to be recovering afterward. Will I be covered for that? And so there are programs to reimburse living donors for their fair expenses, but that's a recognized barrier. And even the recipient, sometimes depending on where they are, might have to travel a far distance to a transplant center, has to do a number of things. So uh, there are costs borne and uh, by, by um, patients and families beyond the healthcare costs. Yeah. And again, maybe this is a good place to talk about how our system works. For example, I think in the US, it's slightly different. But what happens in Canada is that in in Ontario, for example, as we'll be talking in the methods, there are six transplant centers, but there are many more CKD programs. I think there are 26 who are part of this uh, study. So let's say I'm, I'm a dialysis doctor and I have a patient who needs a transplant. It's not that I just refer them to Amit who runs the transplant center. It's that I have to do the workup initially. I have to, you know, get their uh, echocardiogram done, their CT scan done, their mammogram done or prostate screening done. And all those investigations are done. And the center will tell me, hey, these are the things we need. So I get all that done. And then they send this patient to the transplant center saying, hey, have a look at this patient and, and see what needs to be done to list them. They may come back with us saying, oh, we need this one more test to be done or often or they might take care of it. So they, they meet the transplant doctor, they meet the transplant surgeon, and then the patient gets listed. So the transplant referral center does, you know, the late stage of the workup. And I think in the US, it's slightly different. No, that's what we do at the VA. So the VA is like uh, Canada, I guess, yeah. in, in many respects. In many respects. Yes. We do also in our center, that is different than what we do. So we do, the, like, basically, once your GFR is below 20, 20 or below, you get an auto referral to to transplant. And then they do all of the workup from right. there. And that's interesting. And also, uh, just to highlight the distinction, in the U.S., my impression is that a renal program will just pass on the name to a transplant center. Or the patient will self-refer to that transplant center. But what Swap's describing is that in Canada, our kidney programs do that extensive testing. The blood test, the imaging, TB skin test, et cetera, et cetera. Make sure the heart's okay. And that whole package of test results then goes to a transplant center. And that's what we call a referral in Canada, which differs. Okay, we need to get started with this study. Swap, hit us with the methods. Uh, so, I mean, we were talking some a little bit already. Uh, so this was a cluster RCT. Very little bit. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do a deeper dive now. So this is a pragmatic uh, two-arm parallel group open label registry-based superiority cluster RCT. And we'll go through some of those adjectives, not all of them. Uh, Joe- that is a lot of adjectives. That is a huge number of adjectives. I have a box around each one. I could not believe how how long it went. Okay, go uh, but on. We'll, we'll come to some of those aspects later. So the trial included all twenty six chronic kidney disease programs in Ontario from December from November twenty seventeen to December thirty one uh, twenty twenty one. So about uh, five six years. And these programs care for patients who have you know CKD advanced CKD. And and what the the way these programs are structured is uh, we call them multi care uh, kidney clinics. So they are kind of pre dialysis clinics. But the reason we don't call them pre-dialysis clinics is because they are not preparing patients for just dialysis. They are preparing patients for dialysis. They are preparing patients to get a transplant, hopefully, 
like what we're going to talk today, or maybe they're preparing patients for, you know, the conservative care option. So all, the, all those things are taken care of in these multi-care kidney clinics. So these 26 programs were randomized. Or the possibility of long-term health with your CKD never progressing to dialysis. Let's, you know, let's not assume the close here. Exactly, exactly. That you remain in that clinic for a long, long time. You know, you may pass away from non-kidney reasons without developing kidney failure. These 26 chronic kidney disease programs feed into six transplant centers throughout the province. Uh, and they were randomized into either conservative, uh, sorry, usual care, which is whatever we have been doing. Uh, and our center... So there's six. How many, how many of these six are in Toronto? Just one, right? One in Toronto. Two, sorry, two in Toronto. There's two in Toronto. Two. One in Ottawa. Yeah. How about London? Yeah. Does London have one? Yeah. One, one in Hamilton. Hamilton. One, in, London, one in Kingston. One in Hamilton. Kingston is, Kingston. you know, in, in between Toronto and uh, Ottawa, uh, the Queen's University. Gotcha. Those are the six. Two in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. Yeah. Okay, cool. So these centers were randomized to getting either usual care, uh, so 13 CKD programs, and I presume three transplant centers to usual care and the other 13 and 3 to the intervention. So let's talk about the intervention and we can go. Just one clarification. So these CKD programs refer to transplant centers. So we're in this study, we randomly allocated the CKD programs. And it just so happens that the programs are referred to the transplant centers could be like could be having referrals from programs that were in the intervention. Oh, right. right. Both okay, got it. Got it. Yeah. So, so it's not the transplant centers. From both. Yeah. The centers were randomized. And do the centers have any choice of which? So, for example, a CKD center in Toronto, there's two dialysis, there's two transplant centers in Toronto. Could they choose this patient goes to that center and this patient goes to that transplant center or no? So usually in, in, um, in Ontario, we have lines for deceased organ donation, deceased kidney donation. So, for example, my, our program in London, Ontario, has four CKD programs that refer to it. But the feeling is for living kidney donor transplant. Sometimes they might have family members who are in that area, and so it's a little more loose. It depends a little more on the circumstances of that patient. And their but in family. general, people go. There's it, it's it's kind of it's it it's destiny. You're going to go to one CKD center, and that CKD center is going to send to one transplant center. That's generally the way it works. Correct. Like like geography, you're going to be affiliated with one of the CKD geography is uh, destiny programs. And then they're going to yes. refer generally oh, okay. to one. Yeah. Geography is destiny. But I mean, we, the, the, the rates are not, they are slightly different, the waiting times, but not as different as they are in the American, uh, you know, UNOS uh, uh, centers where. Now, Susan, are you in the London? Do you get transplanted in the London center? No. And do you live in London? Uh, I live about an hour from London. An hour. So let's talk about the intervention and then we can come back to, while we're talking about the intervention, you know, we may come back to the way the programs work. So we talked about a bunch of barriers. So the question is, how can these barriers be overcome? Uh, so the intervention here were four things, and, and we can, and, and Susan and Amit will tell us a little bit more about how these were decided, which kind of look at various facets, and they are trying to say, how can we smoothen this process? So one was administrative support to have a local QI team at each of the CKD programs. Uh, second was to have more transplant educational resources in person as well as online both for providers and for patients. The third was an initiative for transplant recipients and donors to share their stories and experience with the transplant ambassadors program that, you know, Susan is a part of, is is one. And to provide feedback, right? So you have all these QI and all these interventions that are going on, but to provide program level performance reports and oversight by administrative leaders. So let's walk through these four uh, interventions. Uh, so for the first one was the QI team. So what was done with the QI team is that 
uh, they had, and this was decided on the basis of an 18 member. There was a kind of a panel, I guess, that sat together and said, hey, what are the barriers? How can we overcome them? And they designed this this kind of an intervention. And so Bob, no, one thing there, if I could, can say that um, in addition to the programs, there's two government-funded uh, organizations in Ontario. There's one OPO, which is called Trillion Gift of Life, and there's something called the Ontario Renal Network, which is helping coordinate the renal services. And just to give you a sense, renal services in, in Ontario cost about $650 million a year across this care being managed in these 26 programs. So the Ontario Renal Network is there. And so then in terms of the stakeholder group, we had representatives from these government agencies. We had uh, experts from the transplant centers, from the CKD programs, people knowledgeable in implementation science and education and quality improvement, all getting together to see how we can um, address these barriers. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that, that's that's perfect. And, and that's the thing, right? This is not like, a, hey, your cholesterol is high. You know, what's the best? cholesterol pill we can use to to lower this right this is a complex problem and it requires uh, more thought to de- devise an intervention uh, so for the administrative support there was a local qi team the local qi team uh, where i think there were four members including a medical lead but also someone from the hospital administration to kind of help smooth in the way uh, and they received 10000 a year uh, 10000 canadian dollars uh, yes canadian dollars so maybe like 7000 us dollars but they do go farther uh, in Canada uh, a year to support their activities. Uh, they were invited to, you know, provincial, uh, monthly provincial uh, rounds. They could share their experiences. So there were four one-day conferences, but these were often teleconferences. So it's like you are meeting with people from other programs and seeing, hey, this is what we are doing. And then you hear from, you know, let's say London is doing exceptionally well compared to Kingston. So the Kingston program will hear from the London program saying, hey, this is what we are doing and, and so on it- and so forth. I mean, is that it? Is that what the idea was just to kind of have increased communication between the different programs? Is that was the kind of the vision there? What, what, was the, what was the thought why this was going to make a difference, move the needle? For that pillar, first of all, we know that you need some sort of grassroots initiative around this. So we wanted local QI teams that are ideally people who do quality improvement. You're supposed to do these PDSA cycles, like plan, do, study, act. Like you're really trying to drive system performance. So we thought it was really important to have local teams who were engaged, felt this is important, and addressing their local barriers. And so we established each of these local teams. And then provincially, we were providing support with uh, three full-time people in a medical, supporting them again to develop charters, develop their goals, uh, bringing them together in person occasionally on four times, also like having monthly rounds. And in addition to some of the other elements, like looking at their data, we're talking about in a moment. Like, So really, they had the tools to drive system performance in their local environment. Because uh, they know their issues. Okay. Okay. So, and that and, was the and quality improvement, problem. grassroots. Let's we know our problems. Let's solve them, and we'll give you. Mm-hmm. And 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 this program gave some resources to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because rather than a top-down solution, it's like you know they could perhaps devise some uh, local interventions. Uh, the second one was education. So this were multiple educational resources that were provided to staff, uh, uh, healthcare staff to patients as well as potential donors. So there's a website uh, and the link is in the uh, in the paper as well as, you know, exploreetontario.org, uh, which stands for exploretransplantontario.org, uh, which was kind of an online uh, personalized education and coaching program uh, that was available for patients and, and uh, uh, for donors as well, I guess. Uh, is there something more you can say about the website? Yes. So then for the education on on the website, we're creating materials like what if you have someone coming out of country as a potential living donor? Uh, when what are the criteria you should think about referring a, a living donor? 
we had a, a calculator to show those statistics based on Ontario data. So you could put in patient's characteristics and it would give you your anticipated survival with transnumbers of dialysis. So it could be personalized. Uh, so there are a number of those resources on the education website. And then Dr. Amy Waterman created this program called Explore Transplant. And Dr. Istvan Mucci in Toronto uh, adapted this. So this is a program where, like as Swapna said, it's kind of a coaching program. And it's taking people from steps in like a psychological framework, pre-contemplation to contemplation to action. First, figure out what someone values. Okay, I like to travel. And then try to communicate and show that transplant will allow that much more than dialysis. And then taking them through the steps. Okay, I'm thinking about potentially starting evaluation to actually undergoing evaluation. I'm thinking about talking to my family. Now I'm going to take the actual step. And it was uh, meant to be delivered as four stages where there was check-ins after each stage. And we mass-produced the DVDs at the time, and also it's available. On. Fantastic. Okay. Um, okay. And did you guys did you guys measure uh, like web traffic? Do you guys? I know that wasn't one of your outcomes, or at least not one of your primary outcomes. Was that so? Did you guys kind of look and see where were these were these educational tools? published and then never accessed, or did you get decent uh, buy-in? Yeah, we got, uh, when we talk about the uptake, we'll talk about that in the, in the results section, but we did get. <laughs> Sorry, AC, didn't mean to step on your results. <laughs> ah, the I'm always doing that. Sorry about that. Okay, thanks, Amit. The thanks Transplant for... Ambassador Program, you have Sue on the line who actually built this program and designed it and then executed it. And I think this is really interesting in that Many of our research initiatives now involve patients as partners and thinking about what to study and, and uh, helping develop the protocols and interpreting the results. This is unique in that Sue also was in charge of the solution. Here's the solution I'm creating. So I think, Swap, if you're agreeable, Sue can tell you a little about this pretty interesting transplant yeah, ambassador program. Exactly. Yeah, so the third pillar, as uh, uh, as uh, Amit alluded, was this patient support. And we know about it's sort of like a peer support. So it's one thing for doctors to tell patients saying you should get a transplant but it's another thing to hear it from a fellow patient so this was uh, a new initiative uh, and so it was i guess not just the intervention but for the person who designed the intervention so can you tell us more about the transplant ambassador program yeah i know i'm happy to and i was the co-founder of the transplant ambassador program but Amit also had a member of his research team whose um, mother had been a kidney patient and had passed away and she and i worked on this project, getting it um, getting it up and running together, but really looking at it from the patient's perspective and also looking at it in terms of how patients could run it, maintain it, keep it going, that it wouldn't be another another program that had to be taken over by, you know, third party or by the government or something like that. So when we put the program together, and there are some peer support programs out there um, from various different organizations, and we thought about how we could get the most impact, how we could reach the most patients, and what patients were really needing at that at that stage. So a few things that were different were obviously the privacy and confidentiality protocols that we built in because we had to go through research ethics board approval with all of this. And for us as patients, that was all new and felt fairly bureaucratic, but certainly um, six years in, we understand all of the rationale and reasons for all of that. It certainly adds a lot, a lot to the volunteers who are running the program, but they all understand that. And the other thing that we wanted was we didn't want you to just go and look at a video. We wanted you to be able to reach out to us and talk to us. So you can go to our website and look at our videos. And we started out with, you know, whatever. I think we started out with 25 ambassadors at the beginning. Um, we're now 200 ambassadors across the province. And there was some 
some thought I remember in those early meetings, Am, um, I heard many times from healthcare providers, oh, you will never get patients to do this work. Patients won't do this volunteer work. And that has turned out to not be an issue. There's a lot of passion amongst patients who want to, I guess, pay it forward and see other patients benefit from the things that they didn't know and that maybe they learned along the way, wish they'd known earlier. But also to give donors a, a role in the system, to give kidney donors a role and the value, not just of talking to other donors, but of talking to kidney patients. Because as uh, I think, I don't know if it was a swap around, it mentioned that kidney patients are worried about the impact that a donation is going to have. So to be able to talk to someone who's done that and understand the impact on them directly was really important. And so the, our program gave donors kind of a place at the table where they didn't really have that before. And in fact, half of our ambassadors are donors. That's just the way it's worked out. Half of them are donors and half of them are patients. And a lot of times our patients will speak with both donor and a recipient. And I just want to make sure, this whole program was spun up just for this study here? Yeah, it was. It was. But we continue on. We've grown. But you, but you, but you didn't you didn't close it down when the study ended because the study ended in 2021, no, right? No, we didn't. And once COVID, so it was intended to be an in-person intervention. But once COVID hit, and of course, half of us were immunocompromised, and we didn't want to be in the clinics. Four volunteers were all kicked out. We kind of kicked ourselves out. And... Uh, <laughs> and basically, you know, then had to kind of totally switch gears and start a virtual platform. So our, our website wasn't really meant for a lot of traffic, but now we've, we've modified that and, and have much more. So, you know, it was kind of a blessing in disguise, like a lot of things with the pandemic were, where now we have this rich uh, website, which is transplantambassadors.ca, which you can check out and lots of resources on there. You can reach out directly to us. So we give all of our ambassadors a tap email too. So we have a secure server. All of our ambassadors work not from their personal emails, but from a tap email to do business through that. Um, and you can, their tap emails are on the website. So you can just, you can watch their video and then you can just send them an email saying, hey, I saw your video. I'd love to talk to you. So we do have some traffic as well, but we also then through our virtual program, which took about it, honestly, you know, it took at least a year to get up and running for the hospitals to kind of transition from us being there in person and wearing these vests. It says, I'm a recipient or I'm a donor. And the back says, ask me about transplant. So the idea is, even if you didn't ask us, or even if you didn't talk to us, you were seeing patients who had transplants in the clinic. You knew who they were. So our vests were super important because it's, you know, we're kind of like these living examples that transplant can be possible. And hopefully in the best case scenario, you're going to see lots of us in your journey. You're going to see lots of people who've had transplants, not just one person that maybe you might know from your neighborhood or whatever. And you're also going to see lots of donors, hopefully. So the idea of naturalizing and normalizing the idea of transplant throughout a patient's journey was really our intent. You know, when I went through my, my renal um, uh, disease progression, I was with sicker and sicker people throughout. And I was in my early 40s at the time, and I kind of just desperately wanted to get out. <laughs> those hospital appointments and just, you know, get into my car and like, you just want to rush, rush out as quickly as you can and not really think about it because that's not, you don't associate or, or see yourself in the people that you're beside. You never see anybody healthy. The sicker you get, you never see a healthy person. And it's like, it adds to your anxiety and your, and your stress. So our goal was to just have people milling about in the centers, seeing these folks, letting them overhear conversations. Maybe they don't know what to ask or they don't want to be singled out for a conversation, but hopefully they'll overhear something. I knew the benefit of transplant. I'd seen my dad. He had it for 31 years. He had passed by the time uh, I had my transplant. And 
I, we never asked. I never asked him any questions about it because it just didn't come up. But I wish I had. Of obviously, once you're in that position, you wish that you had asked more questions. But I do remember one time someone walked into the clinic. And this is as I was getting very ill, and this was a person who was you know, dressed for work, had obviously come in on their break or something. And I remember her getting some kind of prescription filled or, or a, a new script done. And I just remember thinking that person's had a transplant. Oh my God, that person's had a transplant. And they're very similar to me. Like it's not a seven-year-old man, like, <laughs> like, which is fine. Seven-year-old men are lovely, but I didn't want to talk to one. But I just remember the impact that had on me and the hope that that gave me. And I never even had a conversation with that person, but I saw that person and I, I saw that they were living a normal life and that had a huge impact on me. You just need to see more of those examples. Transplant is not the Frankensteinian concept anymore, but people still perceive it to be. And if you don't know anyone in, mm -hmm. in that situation, then it's not real to you and it's scary and it doesn't need to be because there's so many of us who can share our stories and tell you about it. And our goal was never to sell transplant, but just to share our story, just to provide and educate people. There's a few of us that are preemptive transplants, probably maybe 15% of us. Most of us were also on dialysis, so we can share our dialysis experience and we can talk about the difference between dialysis and transplant and the difference in terms of, of how you feel and the difference in terms of your restrictions. Uh, your life restrictions are so huge. But most of us go through it once and don't have the benefit of sharing our experiences with someone. No one else gets the benefit of that. We're now been in the program long enough that many of the people who we talked to about getting a transplant are now transplant ambassadors themselves. So they're, they've now come into the program because they understand the benefit and the impact that it's had on them. Outstanding. And Joe, maybe I can just say as a health professional, the way it worked is we designed this all before the pandemic. So in our waiting room, often to be transplant veterans, just having conversations, even if someone wasn't transplant eligible, they might have family members or Sometimes kidney diseases, you know, run the families or something. So it was just like talking to people. And then later we would organize sometimes formal visits. Sometimes it would be outside the clinic environment. But the transit ambassadors had their swag, their nice green vests, and were visible and were giving hope. Yeah. And, it's, and just having conversations with people. Also, Sue, do you want to just give some statistics on the Transplant Ambassador Program from your initial well, thinking? How um, many active ambassadors are there? What yeah, are so we have about 200 ambassadors, and we've also launched the program in um, Nova Scotia, so outside of Ontario. So that's our first foray outside of Ontario. We are having a conversation with another province as well. And um, we have 24 languages represented and um, lots of variety of different kidney experiences and young people and older people and you know, our, 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 one of our ambassadors who had a transplant at 74, he's one of our most popular ambassadors. He gets a lot of, because a lot of people are just like, I don't know anybody that, you know, who's, who's my age who's had a transplant. And so he gets tons and tons of referrals and, um, always does a, an amazing job. Yeah. But just being able to connect someone with someone like you. Sophia, you had something that you want to say? It's patients do better when they're with providers who, they can associate with, you know, and that's, you know, that's why we want to have more diverse population of physicians, because we want to recruit, particularly this population of patients that we're not recruiting right now that we're not actually bringing in it. Of course, it's our black patients, it's our, you know, our patients who have lower socioeconomic status. And I'm curious, um, in the ambassador program, is it more challenging to recruit those donors and recipients to be a part of the ambassador program? 
because I really do think that that's one of the populations that's going to be the most challenging for us to impact and to touch and to reach out to. Um, so you need to have people that represent them within your group. And is that something that you guys work on? Are there people that are, are doing that for you? I mean, we have a fairly naturally diverse group, you know, as I mentioned, that speak many languages come from dip, many different cultures. When they, when they come, when they come to us, we have them fill out, um, you know, four or five page survey about their experience, including whether they want to disclose a particular culture or, um, or background or, or anything. So we may know something about the person in terms of their background, but if they're not, if they don't want to disclose it to other patients, then we wouldn't disclose that, right? We have done some work reaching out to different communities where we don't have a particular language or, or a strong um, group from that, from that culture or religion or, or whatever. We, we need to move forward because we are only three quarters of the way through the intervention. <laughs> so the fourth pillar was uh, the data accountability. So program level reports uh, summarizing trends were fed back to the uh, team's quarterly and there was one-on-one performance meetings between the uh, the provincial agency, which is the Ontario Renal Network, which is sort of like, think about it as our USRDS equivalent and, and the uh, local CKD program saying, hey, this is how we are doing. Uh, so that was kind of a feedback for them to try to get better. So that's enough of the um, intervention. Amit, why do you have to yeah, put Amit. that? What, what's the reason for that? Just, just quickly, that requires linkage of data and that actually was quite involved because you need to take the transplant center data. And mm-hmm. I don't think, to my knowledge, it doesn't occur in other jurisdictions. So how many people are you referring exactly? How many living donors are coming? How many, uh, et cetera, et cetera, showing all the steps and feeding that back regularly and having discussions. Why are your numbers high or why are they low? Yeah, if you want to fix something, you got to measure it, right? Exactly right. So that's the intervention. And, 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 the control and, and just, got, what, yeah. okay, just um, Amit, so, you, so these are the four that you chose. Did you have a list of 30 possibilities? Like how, like how do you, how do you, you only have so, so many arrows. How did you choose these four? Well, we knew there were a few themes. One is... Um, Talking to people besides health professionals was deemed important by that stakeholder group as one priority. Two, it's education is another priority. The QI team had flexibility to do everything, right? So the local team yeah, could, okay. could do as many things. And then finally, because that was locally, who's, that's who's just accountable local resources. for the performance and the oversight was deemed to be really, really important. So the QI team could do something else that was not part of, course, of this, with others, based on of what they thought was necessary. Okay. Exactly. And, and, and I imagine there... If you if you had had the funding and the resources to do a fifth thing, what would you have added? Like, I think if we had more funding, <laughs> oh, don't tell me that's not a good question. That's a that's a that is a home run question. Well, one of the things that you find actually is that, and particularly during the pandemic, like health professionals just were stretched; they're being redeployed and a number of things. So, having more resources for dedicated people in the Reno programs to actually manage the transplant process versus having the health professionals do it off the side of their desk. Uh, would be important if you had more resources. Having yeah. having someone dedicated to yeah, having a, have, bringing in a bringing in a dedicated person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Susan, what do you so, think? What what do you think would have been a, if you had to add one other thing to this intervention? I think someone who was responsible, like one person who was responsible for bringing the t- bringing the team together, like because there was real challenges when some one person left and you see that Hell, you know, the like a transplant stall for a year or until mm-hmm. I get someone else in. So you like having that that key champion that would rally everyone else around was interesting. Really important. Okay. So a transplant side, but on the dialysis side and in the you know CKD clinic side. Yeah. Sure, sure. So, okay. so that's the 
that's the that's the intervention. Sorry, that's the intervention. That's the intervention. We randomized the to the the, the twenty six. What? How many was it? Twenty four. Yeah, twenty six. Uh, twenty six. But so but I didn't go into into the actual patient population, so I uh, did yeah, not touch upon that, that. Do that. So so at each of these CKD programs, you know, they would have a lot of CKD patients, and there's no point in having all of them uh, to capture the outcomes because they may or may not be someone who's eligible for transplant. Obviously, those who were on dialysis already would be eligible. Yeah, uh, but in the in the pre dialysis population, what if they were eighty patients, years old on dialysis? Were they eligible? So so let me let me come to the pre dialysis <laughs> and then I'll come to that. Okay. So so in the in the in the pre dialysis population, they would include patients who were at high risk of going on dialysis. And how did they measure that? That was with the uh, KFRE. So that's the kidney failure risk equation described by uh, Nav Tangri, who was on the podcast a few episodes ago. Uh, and they needed the KFRE uh, score to be uh, more than twenty five percent. Uh, risk of kidney failure in the next two years. So okay. that KFRE score had to be high enough that they are uh, likely to need a transplant okay. in the next two years if sure. they were not already on dialysis. So that's the base. But, but from them, like Joel alluded to, we would want to exclude people who were not going to get uh, a transplant. They needed to be 18 to 75 years of age Okay. Uh, because this was uh, looking at adults and we are excluding the kind of patients that ACCs. But 75, because uh, kidney transplants do occur after the age of 75, but they are rare. So then that patient population would be mostly ineligible. So I guess that's why a pragmatic choice was made to uh, choose people from 18 to 75. So that's one. Second is they were looking at very high level contraindications, uh, not a very granular level contraindication. So at a pragmatic level, so this would be patients who have uh, no record for dementia who do not live in a long-term care residence, uh, so a skilled nursing facility. Uh, anyone who uses home oxygen, which, which would be a sign of someone having, you know, severe uh, lung disease or other comorbidities, which would likely preclude transplantation. So again, this is, I assume, I mean, this is from the administrative database. So this is at a very high level of people who are very clearly contraindicated who are not eligible to be included in this. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely right. Like we did a study, which is one of the references where we just looked at characteristics in administrative data where almost no, no one gets a transplant in Ontario. And so, oh. so those characteristics, we could you plan it at an administrative database level. Of course, the, the gold standard is having someone go through a careful transplant assessment. And we didn't do that. But, but these were characteristics that we showed in Ontario and published on that people with these characteristics didn't, almost never got a transplant. They made sense. Like someone on home oxygen, like they have severe lung disease and is never going to get a transplant, unfortunately. Okay, excellent. So that's that's the patient population. That's sort of the denominator. Was, yeah. was cancer one of those things or not? Yeah, correct. I didn't hear you, I didn't hear you say that. I heard yeah, home like, oxygen. I didn't like, hear. like cancer, like I can give you the full list. It, but it's not any cancer, right? For example, if someone has had breast cancer in situ five years ago, they would still be a transplant candidate. So you have to be careful about those exclusions. Well, I was, was, was Ahmed careful? I can't imagine he wasn't. He's a very careful guy. <laughs> Sorry, I got lagged. I couldn't hear the question. I apologize. The question is, is can, was cancer on your list? Yeah, it was, of course. And we looked at the cancer and the type of cancer and the recency of the cancer. Oh. And that was all considered. And again, we used those criteria where people never got a transplant in Ontario. Fair enough. Okay. Okay. So you, that, this is a, we're building our denominator here. The number yeah, of people so being that's studied. A, that's, Exactly. So that's the denominator. Uh, let's talk about outcomes because the outcomes are not as simple as you might think they are. Uh, so there are steps, right? So these are kind of a process outcomes that they were having. The first step is, is the patient getting referred for a transplant center for evaluation? And like I said, this is not the, you know, uh, Joel just saying, hey, 
transplant. Here's this patient's name and, and do a transplant. For them to be referred in Ontario for evaluation, we have to complete the transplant evaluation. You know, a bunch of tests, uh, the TB test, the cancer screening, what have you. Uh, so that is step one. Step two is they had a potential living donor contact the transplant center for evaluation. And only the first donor was counted if they had multiple donors. Step three is that the recipient, the potential recipient actually gets added to the deceased donor wait list. And step four is that they receive a transplant. They actually get a transplant, right? Each step was only counted once. Uh, so, you know, if people had more than one donor being referred, uh, that wouldn't be counted again. And, and it is quite possible that someone was already, when the study was started, they were already had completed some of these steps. So then it would be the next step that was counted as an outcome. So, for example, if someone had already been on the deceased donor wait list, then that would not count as an outcome. It would only count as an outcome if they actually got the transplant. Okay, here's my question. Most of your interventions are upstream of the transplant center, right? They're for, they're being implemented. Tell me I'm wrong. They're being implemented in these CKD regions. And so it seems almost problematic that you then measure outcomes that happen after they get to the transplant center, one being actually listed and two actually receiving the transplant. Is that, am I, am I being, am I being persnickety or, or do those, is it, am, I, am I missing something? Um, okay. So first of all, like the first two seem like really good right, outcomes so for what the intervention that's, is. That's hundred percent under the uh, auspices of the transplant, of the CKD, CKD program. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the referral, like sending a referral package to a transplant center, that's hundred under the purview of the CKD program. And yeah. also, they can raise awareness of a living kidney donors, and the living kidney donors, interested one, potential donors, contact the Agreed. Agreed. That's under the purview of the CKD program. If someone's active on the deceased donor waiting list, they can still get interventions to now talk more about living donation. And that's also under the purview of the CKD program as well. And then, of course, we encountered receiving a transplant, either living or deceased, because that's the outcome, of course, we're most important, uh, interested in. Most yeah. important. Now, right. it is also the CKD program that's involved in this because often, as Swapnil said, people get a green light or red light to proceed. And once they're active, things come up and the CKD program's got to communicate effectively with the transplant center. If something comes up, they got to reconcile it quickly and get back and uh, keep that transplant going. So at the end of the day, the CKD program is quite heavily involved in helping people get a transplant beyond the collaboration with colleagues who are primarily responsible in transplant centers. Yeah, that, that satisfies you, Joel? I will. I will. Withdraw my concern. Let the okay, record show. Okay. So they looked at the historical uh, transplant rates from each centers, and that's how they were randomized. So, for example, you didn't want to have centers which have a baseline high rates of transplant all in, uh, in one arm and, and the others in the other arm. So that was kind of, you looked at historical trends before stratifying them. Is that the right way to put it, Amit? Yeah, like the principle is that... Um... We use covariate constraint randomization. We talked about this in the MyTemp podcast, that mm -hmm. there's no magic about randomization. At the end of the day, you're randomly allocating 13 programs of one group and 13 programs of the other group. And so you can run all the possible randomization schemes because we have all the administrative data based on historical information. And you can select certain characteristics mm -hmm. like what transplant center they refer to, et cetera. And just try to balance those on measured characteristics so that you have a good chance of your table one showing that there's uh, similar baseline characteristics between two groups. If you didn't do this with it, 13 and 13, there'd be a high chance of you getting quite a bit imbalance. And even though you can adjust for it afterwards, it always creates, you know, this hand, hand wringing, I say, in the renal community and amongst mm -hmm. medical professionals. When you start seeing that table one very different. So this is a way to kind of guard against that. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. 
but okay, okay, interesting. And it worked. Like again, you're getting baseline characteristics that look pretty similar in the two groups in your table one. We get to that. You are randomizing 26 programs, so it looks like 20,000 patients or what have you. It's actually 26. The, the unit of randomization is 26, so it's small. So it's possible you may get imbalances. So it's it's really important to do this step right, which was done uh, from from the team which has had experience doing this several times now. Uh, as far as the sample size calculation is concerned, they were looking, they had 80% power to detect a difference of 12 steps. So the assumption was that, you know, we talked about these four steps that each patient could undergo. Uh, so the assumption was that in the usual group, a uh, usual care group, there would be 23 steps per 100 patient years. Uh, and, and there would be 12 more steps that could occur in the intervention. So you'd go from 23 to 35 steps per 100 patient years. You're looking for a 50% bump. That seems like a exactly. That's a huge treatment effect that you're looking for, right? Well, we're talking about steps here, and many people can contribute more than the steps. Now, if we were talking about just transplants, I'd 100% agree with you, Joel. So, if it was step four, it would be a huge effect. But it's just getting the referral done, or or having a living donor call them. Uh, that's that's counted as a step here. So, and that's a superiority aspect, right? So, there were many adjectives here. So, this trial was designed as a superiority trial. Um, the analysis, I don't know how much of detail you want me to go into it, considering that we are 90. <laughs> as, how about as little detail as possible? Could you do that? So just trust us on this. Uh, we're going to trust you because we're not going to understand it anyway. So, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, it was an intention to treat analysis. Um, is there any, uh, is there any hanky panky here? Is it straightforward? <laughs> it's straightforward, but it's interesting in the sense that if you have steps, you have to account for them. So this this was quite innovative. We used a multi-state model. Okay. We talked about the primary outcome, but there were secondary outcomes as well. And there was a post hoc uh, uh, analysis also done to look at potential contamination uh, bias. So AC, results. Uh, just real quick, um, Amit, Susan, any other important parts of the methods we missed? Little darling parts of the methods that you put in there that you're like, I, I can't believe you didn't talk about that. No, maybe the only thing is, that, which I think is a good standard, we published the methods, we published, including the protocol, and the statistical analysis plan separately before we looked at any outcome results. So those are all in the public. Well, domain. and especially because there was a lot of judgmental call, judgment calls about what the intervention is going to be. And you must have thought deeply about that. Like they ta- you, you did talk about you brought a group of people together and you... Right, and there, 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 exactly. there, are and there was discussion, on, you know. And there are standards how you should describe a complex intervention, and we try to follow those standards in the protocol. Okay, okay. Well, in the room or on the phone. And Susan, you were involved in kind of choosing this <laughs> intervention? You were you were there and that you were in the room? You were in the room where it happened? Mostly on the phone. Thank God, right? All right. Is it time to shine? Okay. All right. AC. All AC, hour and 20 minutes in. Hey, what about some results? Oh my God, this is going to be- This is nothing new. I don't know why you're even making that comment. (laughs) This is like our par for the course. It is true. It is true. You know why I'm making that comment? Because I'm editing this one, Sophia. (laughs) That's why I'm making that comment. Oh my God. Last one, I was like, oh man, we're already at an hour and 40. Um, so as a reminder, so this took place from November 1st of 2017 to December 13th of 2021. So this was a 4.2 year trial period. And as we discussed, there were 26 CKD programs. They cared for a total of, uh, 
a little over 20,000 patients with advanced CKD who were potentially transplant eligible. Of those patients, 9,780 entered the trial from the 13 CKD programs that were randomized to the intervention group, and 10,595 patients entered from the 13 CKD programs that were in the usual care group. And as we already talked about, this was an intention to treat analysis. So looking first at table one, just kind of the characteristics between the two groups. So there were three CKD programs that had a transplant center co-located with them in each group. So that was balanced between the two. The baseline historical rates of kidney transplant, which is important as we talked about, uh, it was 6.78 in the intervention and 6.31 per 100 patient years in the control group. So again, pretty similar. They also looked at rates of living donor transplantation versus deceased donor transplantation. And again, those were similar between the two groups. That ratio of living to deceased is not anywhere close to my experience. We're way, we're like 20 deceased for every one living at our, and I maybe, and I know my, our dialysis center is particularly bad at doing living donation uh, for who knows what reason. I, it is. It is. So just so that people know the ratio that we're talking about here. So um, for this for these groups, it was 1.83. For living donor transplantation, it was 1.83 per 100 patient years in an intervention group and 1.91 um, in the usual care group for living donor transplantation. And then it was 4.95 versus 4.4 per 100 patient years deceased donor transplantation uh, were the rates of deceased donor transplantation. So I, I agree with you. That's a pretty high number of, of living donors. I agree with you. At least on the adult side, we definitely see um, far more deceased donors than that in terms of the ratio. Any comment on that, Amit? Like in, in Ontario, maybe 30, you know, 40% of transplants are living kidney donor transplants. So these numbers are consistent with what I expected. But the way we can solve the access to transplant issue is to help more living donation occur. That's where the unrealized potential is. And so many organizations have said countries and and jurisdictions have to increase the number of living kidney donor transplants. That's why this intervention particularly was focused on that aspect. So there's room for you guys to improve, Joel, is what we're saying. <laughs> at, at least you could come up to Canadian standards. You know, what's interesting is there was a large focus on education and creating additional resources for patients and donors. And um, I do a lot of educational research. And Mm -hmm. The challenge always is you never know if the intervention is actually working or not, and whether or not the the patients who are always motivated to access those resources are the ones that are utilizing it and the other ones are not. And so it's really challenging. However, I do like the point that you're making because I feel like the living donors are an untapped resource where they're not in it in the nitty gritty of it all and getting they're not the kidney patients, but they actually can be accessed. And you can access a whole new pool of motivated people who might be willing to mm -hmm. take a look at it and and consider it and read and understand it and access those resources. And they've not been tapped before. So I agree that that's a really interesting population that I totally think that you should. Be. And I think there's something later on that says even we did see a little bit. You guys moved the needle a tiny bit within that population. I don't want to steal that from you. <laughs> um, Watch it. Speak more into that, Amit. <laughs> but um, but but I do think that that is probably going to be the one of the most powerful places for you to focus efforts. So I'm looking. So just a so real time, real time fact checking. 
This is from the 2021 annual data report from the SRTR. And there were in the United States 19,500 kidneys transplanted from deceased donors and 5,970 kidney transplants from living donors. So way higher than I had thought. So about three deceased for every one living way so, so these numbers pretty are pretty close. Not, yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty close. close. And, and, and Sophia, you got to go to this website because this is the worst visual abstract I've ever seen. Like it is truly <laughs> horrible. And I've seen some horrible ones, but they, they can't even get their text in the boxes. It's really embarrassing. I'm going to send, send on the chat. This, this link is going to see this thing. This thing is truly dreadful. And, and while you're AC, while you're going through the baseline characteristics, one thing I thought that was really important to consider, because a lot of this is in these multi-care kidney clinics, people are not yet on dialysis. And so the EGFR was 16. There's about 5,000 patients in each group, and 10,000 patients total were in the not on dialysis in this trial. And the EGFR was 16. The random urine ACR in milligrams per millimole was 150, you know, about 160. And the estimated two-year uh, chance of uh, kidney failure that's what one describes, the KFRE risk, was around 43%. And that's about how many actually did end up starting dialysis during the course of the trial. Are you serious? So your Tangri's equation works. Tangri's equation works again. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it never fails. It's unbelievable. Um, Undefeated. So, okay. Uh, just to keep kind of going through it. So, keep on AC. Uh, you know, looking at table one, it does look well, relatively well balanced overall. So the ages of the patients in both groups are similar. Similar numbers of patients uh, entering the trial at the start of the trial, a little bit higher residential instability in the intervention group, higher ethnic diversity, um, but similar material deprivation, um, a little bit of a smaller one-way distance to a transplant center in the intervention group, 25 kilometers versus 32 kilometers, uh, similar BMI, similar rates of healthcare utilization. Um, And then in terms of some of the characteristics overall of these patients, so the median age was 61 years. Uh, 38% were female and 57% had a history of diabetes. 51%, so about half were approaching the need for dialysis and the other half were receiving maintenance dialysis. Um, And then we already touched on the mean EGFR uh, the median random urine albumin to creatinine ratio and the two-year predicted risk of kidney failure we touched on. And then for patients who entered the trial at the beginning, which was November of 2017, on dialysis, the median duration of dialysis was 2.6 years. Before entering the trial, 80% of the patients had completed none of the steps towards receiving a kidney transplant. Repeat that one more time. Before entering the trial, 80% of the patients had completed no steps towards receiving a kidney transplant bookkeeping thing. So the 20% of the people that had done some of these steps, those steps were ineligible. You only counted steps after the intervention began. Is that right? Yeah. And the only steps that were after, like suppose someone got referred for transplant prior to the trial start date, and then they enter the trial and then a living donor comes forward to donate a kidney, which could have been a result of the intervention. Then that was counted. So the only thing that, only thing that happened after the trial was counted. And then we did additional analysis, which we'll get to like Restricting the analysis of people who had no steps at all. Fair enough. But, but 80% of them are clean. I mean, most of the people were totally clean. So patients were followed for a median of 2.1 years. It looks like 1.4% of patients emigrated from the province. 1.1% recovered their kidney function. How embarrassing for the KFRE there. These patients had a 25% chance of needing dialysis, and they actually recovered their kidney function. 
Okay. Or, or maybe they were maybe they were on dialysis, right? And they recover. Correct. Like some people, we while taking care of patients occasionally, that over a prolonged period of time, they sometimes come off dialysis. Like I, in my own practice, patients with myeloma, atherombolic disease, I've had those few cases where eight months later they come off dialysis. Some COVID have long, slow recoveries from uh, from dialysis also. Uh, so 13.7% became ineligible to receive a kidney transplant and 16.8% died. And those rates were similar between the two groups. So in the follow-up, we also talked a little bit about kind of patients transferring to an alternate group. So 1,105 patients transferred to a CKD program in the other group. Um, and the breakdown was, it was about 484 of the patients that huh. were originally assigned to the intervention group, which is 4.9% and 621, which is 5.9% in the, who started out in the usual care group. But that was just at follow-up, right? That wasn't. Yes. Yeah. Is that, is that what you expected, Amit? I thought the numbers seemed high. I thought people didn't move so much. I mean, uh, in the overall picture, yeah, it's f- less than 5%, but still. Yeah, that sounds like a lot. Yeah, I'm surprised. Well, sometimes you get kind of funny things like people transfer close to the time of their transit. Sometimes they transfer a program. Like there are a few things going on, but we were very reassured that 97% of the follow-up time, they're in the same CKD program. So even if they got transferred at the end or something in their in their journey, and 97% of the time, they're in the CKD program per the original allocation. This was intended to treat. Yeah, and I agree. I think that's that's in a way the bigger thing to look at is is exactly like you said. How much of the time did they spend actually receiving the care that was intended? And and like you mentioned, ninety seven point two percent. So um, so very high. They reported that one thousand seven hundred and forty patients completed the educational program, which is that Explore Transplant Ontario that we talked about. Repeat that one more time. How many people? One thousand seven hundred forty patients. Completed the educational program, which is Explore Transplant Ontario. So you you had you had roughly ten thousand people in the group, and seventeen percent of them went through the educational stuff. No, there was many educational aspects, but one was this very detailed twenty minute videos times four, where you had to finish this whole program. That Do you have metrics on the other educational offerings, and, or is it the only one that you could actually measure? We have we have besides this uptake, we actually have a separate protocol for a process evaluation, like which. To Sophie's point, we didn't get to assess knowledge in patients. We didn't do that because that was too involved. But we did get self-reported uh, perception of knowledge amongst health professionals. They feel they were more knowledgeable, those kinds of things. Okay, fair enough. Fair we enough. haven't completed it. Susan, Susan, did you help build this education stuff? This, this, no, not for the Explore Transplant. That was some um, website thing? That was adapted the Amy Waterman's, as Amit said, in the U.S. So, I mean, I was in some of those uh, provincial meetings where those were discussed and had the opportunity to. Did you ever do up just to check it out, see what it's like? Yeah. Well, I, I did check it out. You did? And, I mean, I was post-transplant, but, you know, as ambassadors, we um, we certainly, you know, told people about it and things like that. I mean, Amit didn't, it changed a little bit where uh, at the beginning they had to watch all four videos and by the end it was just kind of they could take it home and they could see it on the website and it was a little bit more flexible toward the end. Yeah, like this will, this will come out in the process evaluation later on, but we got the impression that it was hard for patients to watch four 20-minute videos and then come back and talk to someone about it and reflect on things. And to, as the program has designed, that was just a lot of time. Okay, 17% of that people roughly listen to the, watch these videos. Yeah, so one of the other big things that we talked about was these interactions with transplant ambassadors. And again, these were prior transplant recipients as well as living kidney donors. So they recorded 5,471 meaningful interactions with patients with advanced CKD. 
and then 719 wow. meaningful interactions wow. with potential living kidney donors. So you had, you contacted and a then, huge fraction yeah. of your intervention group. So yeah, and before we go to the quantitative results, maybe this is a good segue. Like Sue can tell you examples where they heard quite clearly this had a major impact. Do you want to describe that briefly, Sue? Like just in you mean not from a patient perspective? Like, do you have any stories of you know talking to someone and they said, "Aha, you know, this is what I wanted to hear." Oh yeah, I know many I many many, many examples, um, in- including people who have were helped by ambassadors and then became ambassadors because of the impact that it had. One of the things is you know getting a hold of people. Uh, once, especially in virtual, when we had to go virtual, we weren't in the clinic anymore, and then the, the, the um, healthcare providers would need to provide us with a with a referral, get verbal consent um, that someone could talk to us, and then we we'd reach out to them. So lots of those phone calls, you know, a lot of people preferred the phone calls uh, because they could do it at night. The average phone call, you know, by an ambassador from their home is forty five minutes compared to you know five or ten minute interaction in the hospital. Um, because people are kind of rushing out the door and have to get to, you know, their next, you know, whatever they have to do next. We did find that the virtual program really did complement our um, the work that we were providing in hospitals as well, just because you could have more in-depth conversations, develop more of a relationship um, through that through that work. You know, we have many ambassadors who have talked about the fact that they weren't serious, or not many patients who've told us that it was after they talked to an ambassador, they got more serious about their work, their workup, and also about the idea of accepting a kidney from someone else. Turned out to be a a big challenge that we found as ambassadors was people who had a living donor who had offered to come forward, but they didn't want them to. Again, being able to talk to a recipient or a donor about their experience really helped in many cases, which we've documented um, ease someone's mind about accepting that living about accepting that living donor kidney. So in many cases as well, we're able to have, and it often comes down to a Amit kind of alluded to this, but a parent of an adult child who won't accept it from an adult child. We have that all the time, and so we have a number of parents in the program or parent in laws who've in who've had that mm-hmm. exact experience, and so connecting them with someone that experience is an especially uh, binding or especially important um, to be able to connect those folks who who can say here's here's why I accepted that. Here's what it, uh, or, or or the donor to say, here's why it was important for me to do this, and here's what it's meant in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, Emma. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's okay. But there, there are many examples that you told us where people, well, I've heard them speak how this, how impactful this was in specific cases. So I'm curious about the way that this was counted because Joel, you're saying that that means that they reached half. So let's say that, for example, you know, someone talked to a mm-hmm. transplant ambassador. And then you followed up with them. Like you felt like, okay, you know, this conversation went well, but we, you know, we need more contact with them and and they have more questions. Did, did that for the same patient, did that count as two separate meaningful interactions or was it only each patient's first meaningful interaction that counted? In other words, does that 5,471 meaningful interactions necessarily constitute 5,471 yeah. separate patients? Or can that include the same patient? um, We only counted the interaction once. In phase two, we've modified that slightly because we're not as as rigid. But um, sorry, one thing to clarify is that these are interactions with patients in the programs, but you might not know if they're transplant eligible. So uh, just keep that in mind. These are just interactions that are occurring with patients because the transplant ambassadors wouldn't know exactly the eligibility. Like who's eligible. Right, 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 right. And if a patient was interested in transplant, they talked to them. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they're not necessarily the old, they could be beyond the denominator. They may not be in the study because they wouldn't know that, but they were, this is, this is just an example of activity that was occurring. I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But some may not be. Presumably most of them would be, but uh, it's possible there were some who were not. Yeah. Okay. So each CKD program mm-hmm. received regular performance reports and they had annual performance meetings with the provincial re- uh, renal agency. And then I think one thing to note that 2.4 years into, so two and a half years almost into this, you know, a little over four year trial period was the onset of COVID. And so just in terms of ways that that impacted things, it certainly you guys mentioned that it impacted the intervention delivery for at least one year of the trial period. I'm sure it probably impacted it for probably the remainder of the trial period in in some way. Things that were impacted were um, in some places, transplant activity stopped temporarily. QI teams were not able to meet as often. Uh, Provincial rounds had to be paused. Healthcare staff may have retired. They may have been redeployed. As you already talked about, the transplant ambassadors transitioned from in-person to virtual meetings. Um, And so COVID did have, you know, certainly an impact on this, on this study two and a half years in. And then in terms of results, um, so the rate of the primary outcome did not differ significantly between the intervention group and the usual care group. So uh, just as, again, as a reminder, there are about 10,000 patients in each group and the total completed steps, which is what we're looking at, the steps that were completed during this kind of trial period, uh, it was 5,334 in the intervention group and 5,638 in the usual care group. And so what that kind of roughly translates to is 24.8 versus 24.1 steps per 100 patient years in the respective groups. And that's an adjusted hazard ratio of one with a confidence interval of 0.87 to 1.15. Your assumption was pretty good. You assumed 23 steps per hundred and it ended up being 24 for your control group. You nailed that. Well, well, that's one of the benefits of doing these kinds of trials when you have the exact historic data. Like you have the exact data what's likely going to occur because you're analyzing many years before. So that's one thing. What's one of the benefits of these types of trials? You're you're much better at your planning because you have all the data uh, pre-trial. So some of the other things that you guys looked mm-hmm. at that I really appreciated is you you kind of had the breakdown. So it wasn't just total number of steps completed, as we talked about this kind of the, you know, one of the primary outcomes, but it also matters. Are there more people kind of getting all four steps done or more people making it from this step to that step? So in follow-up, 131 patients in the intervention group uh, completed all four steps. So that's 1.3% versus in the usual care group, that number was 129, which is 1.2%. So relatively similar. Um, For completing three or more steps, it was 572 in the intervention group, which is 5.8% versus 589, which is 5.6% in the usual care group. For two or more steps, it was 1,493, which is 15.3% in the intervention group. And 1,538, which is 14.5% in the usual care group. And then for one or more steps, it was 3,138 patients, which is 32.1% in the intervention group. And 3,382, which is 31.9% in the usual care group. So you can see that all of those numbers are relatively similar between the two groups. In terms of secondary outcomes, there were not any notable differences in the secondary outcomes focused on living donor transplant and each hazard ratio, again, contained, and with for each hazard ratio, the 95% confidence interval, again, contained one. Um, so the rate of starting a liver, living donor eval for CKD patients who didn't have a potential living donor before trial entry was a little bit higher, but not significantly different between the intervention group and the usual care group. 
And uh, that was 923 versus 920 evals, which is 4.9 versus 4.4 evals per 100 patient years. So that hazard ratio um, is 1.22. But again, the 95% confidence interval is 0.97 versus 1.54. That's the one that's so tantalizing, right? It, it came like so close, I know. This doesn't account for multiple comparisons, but one of the additional analyses where we looked at uh, from yeah. MCKC, I think, and, and no steps performed to a living donor um, con- uh, contact coming forward, that did have um, a hazard ratio of 95% confidence well, that didn't overlap with one. And that's where a lot of the activity was focused on. But again, you have to be careful and cautious in interpreting that because it doesn't account for multiple comparisons. And many of the, again, even though the point estimates are a bit higher, the 95% confidence levels uh, cross one. Yeah. So as you mentioned, there were, um, you guys had some pre-specified analyses um, to look at the kind of consistency and estimated intervention effect. Um, but, and then you, you know, one of the things that you kind of mentioned was patients transitioning from no steps to a potential living donor eval was higher in the intervention group versus the usual care group. And that uh, hazard ratio was 1.79. Confidence interval was 1.02 to 3.17. Um, so it was 2.5 versus 1.4 evaluations per 100 patient years. Another thing you guys looked at was looking at time to complete certain steps. So the median time from transplant referral to a living donor transplant for those who completed both steps in the follow-up time was 13.6 months in the intervention group and 15.6 months in the usual care group. Um, and then the median time when potential... Not significant, I take it? Not significant. Okay. So I will stop asking. Yeah, not significant. Yeah, not, nothing. Nothing was significant. Um, it took a long time. But, but yeah, one yeah, thing yeah, there yeah, is yeah. just to highlight how long it takes mm-hmm. again. Like, I think that's... Like, like even yeah. from transplant center referral yeah. to receipt of living donor transplant, it's taking, like, over a year. Well, this is exactly what Susan, that's Susan's experience herself. It is so long she had to go on dialysis. Exactly. And this is a, the transplant referral is where most of the workup is already done. that's after most of the work. That's not. Because it might take a year to get that package done just to even send the referral. Right, 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 right. It's even long. That's right. right. It's even longer because the clock's not starting at the true beginning. Oh, my. And this is a living donor transplant, right? Not a deceased donor where, yeah, you have to wait on the wait list. So despite having a living donor, you still wait. A year, more than a year. And I, and I wasn't aware of that, right? I talk to people all the time saying, oh, a living donor, you will get a transplant in six months yeah. or something. I guess I'll have to modify what I just had too, but during COVID, um, living donor transplant was, um, it's an ele- it was considered an elective surgery. So certainly a lot of people that we spoke to had, you know, their transplants delayed, their living donor transplants delayed um, several times. Yeah. So is there a pre-COVID, post-COVID analysis? Did you do that analysis? It will be a post-talk. Obvi- obviously, a you didn't plan that prospectively. If there's a pa- global pandemic, <laughs> we want to do analysis before and after. Come on, a post-talk. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> Abit, you got that? Yeah. So, so in the in the paper, we report truncating uh, the fall time to the pandemic and acknowledging that there's less. In the in the supplement, I think you're referring to table thirteen in the supplement. Um, so <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. Well That's played, impressive. well played. Yes, um, yes, but yes. that was looking at, uh, the effect when, as you mentioned, follow-up was truncated to March 16th of, uh, 2022. 
even there, they again looked at the primary outcome and then the the secondary outcomes that they had mentioned. And again, none of them were found to be significant when you looked at that truncated. So they did. They thought of everything. You can't blame it on COVID. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, a, it's, it's, it's a very important. valid question. Like, it's a very it's valid question. It's a good question. Yeah. It's not as good did as you check what's GPT your that one? <laughs> That's the best question. <laughs> <laughs> no, what? No, no, I don't know how to use that program. No, no, no. no. The ASIN, yeah, the ASIN embargo policy wouldn't be happening. Yeah, no, we're not doing that. Check That's check right. GPT. So, uh, <laughs> I think those were anything else. There were some other things in the results. So, in uh, like we talked about, kind of in terms of median times, the to different steps, the times weren't really found to be significant. So, they also looked at potential living donor evaluation to receipt of living donor transplant, um, 13.8 versus 13.9 months. Um, And then the other thing I think really importantly in these types of trials is looking at potential contamination bias, meaning did the control group somehow receive or were they? somehow exposed to the intervention, right? So like if if all of us on this call were randomized to different things and we got to talking about it and we're like, oh, hey, that sounds really good. I want to do that, right? And then you're actually somehow kind of exposed to that intervention. And so they they looked at transplant rates in the usual care group and they were not higher during the trial when compared to their historical norms. So it wasn't as if we did this intervention, everyone somehow found out about it and the transplant rates were higher all around and therefore we're not really seeing the difference between the two groups. So there was no Hawthorne effect? No Hawthorne effect. Would have been nice if there was. No, when we say Hawthorne effect, Hawthorne effect is that you change your behavior because you're being that's, studied. That's true. That's no, it's actually not. different because yeah, it's, yeah. it's not as if people are going through the transplant evaluation process because they know they're being studied. This would be, or or that centers are referring more people because they know they're being studied. This would be them. No, but it's doctor. If the doctors knew that they were measuring their transplant, records, they might be more likely to refer people on to be more aggressive about getting the transplants because they know, I I presume, some of the doctors in both groups knew that they were being, this was being evaluated, I presume. Yeah. But one, one, like, what, what we were getting at with this analysis. So I think you can have, though, a difference in the rates after because you know you're being studied, but then also because you're separately, if you have been kind of unintentionally yeah, because I think they're both to the Here we were also thinking about like, are they getting exposure to the intervention elements? Yeah, that? right. Is Susan walking around the other hospitals with her <laughs> vest on, talking about transplant to people that are not supposed to be exposed to well, once on transplants? We didn't you can control Somebody's been, on our website. And exactly. And that's right. That's right. And the website was open to everybody, right? So you didn't know who was actually accessing that transplant education. That's a good point. Although we did say for the educational aspects, like, the login and everything was given by program, and we did we did encourage programs in the intervention group not to share the resources with the mm-hmm. uh, uh, usual care group until after the mm-hmm. trial. And at least uh, what AC is saying, we didn't see any bump up in the usual care group. If you saw that their transplant activity was increasing, then it might suggest either they're being more careful, like you're saying, Joel, because they're now being watched, so they want to be, you know, getting straight A's or that they got access to the intervention group so that they had improvements, but we didn't mm-hmm. see that. We saw that they, the, at least in the usual care group, the rates are similar to the story. Yeah, no. There's, it's, a, it's an intractable problem. 
you did all this stuff and you couldn't so, move the needle so are we ready yeah. to talk about the discussion like why and what and dissect? yeah yeah i see was there anything else uh, anything else i think that i mean there's tons actually that they went into in the in the supplement but i think those are the things that we can touch on for right now okay fair enough i mean it seems fair like enough. unfortunately this really didn't it? kind of improve things or remove the needle like you guys said which i think is 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 difficult. I mean, I certainly wish that it had. I think this was I think this just goes to show how intensive moving this needle is going to be. Um it this is a really really difficult thing mm-hmm. to do. Um it's incredibly important and I think we need to keep trying to figure out ways to do this, but this is a very 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 difficult thing to do and a very resource intensive, time intensive thing. And I think one of the big questions is where do we need to be spending those time Mm-hmm. and resources in order to to most effectively move this needle. Like first highlight the importance that um I think under the Trump administration looking at the US lens in 2019 the Advancing America Kidney Health Executive Order was that by 2025 in the United States 80% of people with new kidney failure would be starting renal replacement therapy at home or with a transplant 80% that's what the executive order is coming to you by 20. I know. We're almost there. We're really yeah, close. Good thing we have two more years. When we look at... <laughs> <laughs> and just to give you a sense, in this even Ontario setting, if you look at the people who are in these advanced kidney clinics where they're getting a lot of multidisciplinary care, where you have the best chance of achieving this outcome, about 15% are getting a preemptive transplant. And if you count home dialysis, not start off, but even within six months of dialysis therapy, that's another uh, 35. So we might be 50%. If, again, you count also home dialysis within six And that's months. in the most optimistic so setting. That's the most optimistic scenario that you can think of. Correct. So this is going to be really challenging. Like, I think, like, stretch goals are useful and important to galvanize people. But this is going to be really, really hard to achieve. <laughs> Well, enough about America. Let's talk more about Ontario. No, I mean, what, here, what, here's the deal. Okay, go ahead. I mean, you did the my temp trial, and I felt when I was reading that, I was like, oh, this is the answer. Like, I think you definitively kind of, uh, you know, I hate to say definitively, there's always room for more research, but it closed the book for me. I was like, in my hands, with what I have access to in terms of just changing the temperature, this is an ineffective intervention. And I felt that you guys answered that definitively. And I read this article and I just, part of me feels like I can't, it's too depressing to think that there's nothing that we can do to move the needle. And so I just don't feel that same definitive, you know, because in the end you picked four interventions. In the end, you there was only what, $10,000 per month for the uh, administrative and maybe that was not a, maybe, as Susan said, maybe you need a, a dedicated employee at each one of these centers. And that makes sense that, that it doesn't feel like you've closed the book on it. You've like it said, this intervention doesn't work, but it seems we like be well, you could adjust the, you could, yeah, you could try, you could try it 15 different other ways. I what? think that 
probably one of the most powerful things that's come out of this study is the ambassador program. And I don't even think we quite understand the power that it may have and the impact it may have. And I think it started out as a grassroots movement and it's growing. And I think it's having a very dramatic, at least anecdotal impact on patients. And it's going to be incredibly hard to measure its impact. But if this is something, I mean, I I really do, no offense to this study, it's a negative study. I'm really excited, even more excited about this ambassador program and knowing that it's touched patients personally, and it's maybe moved the needle for a lot of them. And so if anything, you guys have started a program that has the potential to be adopted, you know, nationwide, you know, into the United States and have that sort of impact. And if you can really grow the diversity of the people who are your ambassadors, both donors and transplant patients, patients have been transplanted, I really do think it has the potential to be very powerful. Well, maybe a few thoughts here. One is, I think everyone's saying this is really, really important issue. We need to have better access for patients when it comes to transplant. Second thing is that we aren't quite sure the way to best to do that. So what are some lessons learned from this trial? One is, first of all, what do you need to do to even make an intervention possible? Like, I think these were some successes. One is you heard Sue was amazing in just creating this grassroots transplant ambassador program from scratch. That was a really useful experience. Two is just how you take data from multiple different places, put it in reports, put it in reports, make sense in terms of what you're trying to achieve and get it in the right hands and get people to start thinking about it. And then having an accountability framework, I think is a step in the right direction. Because as you said, Joel, if you don't measure it and don't keep on bringing it back, you're never going to change it. Measure what you value. So I think that was also a key step. And that requires data sharing agreements between transplant centers and CKD programs. A lot of things in the back end that we achieved there. Also, just the way you can now keep ourselves honest and test interventions. Like sometimes what we do is not use this rigorous approach to test effects, right? Like we kind of often sometimes say we do some sort of study. We say it looks like it had some effects. Here, I think we did hold ourselves to a high standard to try to say, does this thing really work? And what's the most rigorous way to test that? But are we disappointed by the result? Yes, of course we are. I do feel that having was in the trenches for this trial, the pandemic did take a lot of a wind out of our sails. We seemed like we were building momentum because it takes time to get people on board and, you know, even working people through in the different transplant processes, even if we had a lot of people worked up before the referrals came in, there was a lot of air out of the balloon after the pandemic hit. Like it was kind of chaos. Like transplant activity stopped completely practically for a while, you know? So I think whether these results would have translated if we didn't have a pandemic, I wonder if we would have had potentially more living donor transplants. Again, this is speculation, but I wonder that. We did complete this large, ambitious trial, 20,000 patients. We showed that you can do these evaluations of programs in a very authentic way that keeps everyone honest on the result. And so I think those are positives, uh, but this is a really tough problem. And we're not, we're, we still are committed that the problem is important and we need to work on our version 2.0 in a better way. And hopefully there's some things here that other people can take in their regions to try to improve access because transplant is such an important, impactful intervention. We have to do better. Susan, what's your take home? I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's just so many reasons for us. You know, I think building trust with the hospital staff was a big, was a big part of our program's challenges at the beginning. Having patients be privy uh, to this information, part of the QI team, all of that, that took some time to get the the staff to get adjusted to us being there, know that we're trustworthy, getting stuff done, all of that kind of stuff. That took some time. And then to have to go... to go virtual and 
all of these new processes developed to get the program going. I mean, that was a, that was, those were really big curveballs for us. But I think the growth of the program shows that the word is out there. The, the growth is not coming, by the way, in terms of ambassadors coming forward. Those ambassadors are not being recommended by the hospitals. Ambassadors are coming forward. We do the recruiting. It's word of mouth. It's be, talking to an ambassador. That's we know the word is getting out, or we wouldn't have as many ambassadors coming forward talking about how much either they found out about the program after they were transplanted and wish they knew about it, or that they were assisted um, through their um, through the program. We know it's working. We are very confident in terms of how we're moving the program forward and how we are enhancing the program. We've also built this network of patients and donors across the province who who want to move this needle. So not just as TAP ambassadors, but to get involved in research and to assist in other ways. As we've um, looked to make TAP a more sustainable program, not just a research component of a program, you know, we've established something called the Kidney Patient and Donor Alliance of Canada, which is not for profit, so that we can continue to keep TAP going uh, because we believe in it and uh, we're passionate about moving it forward. And to have something run by patients is extremely unique. And and does does the fact that this came out of this study and we measured everything and you didn't move the needle, does that deflate you? Do you feel like it's just you're so confident in your in the in the in the goodness of what you're doing and your personal experiences that you just don't need it to be positive? How do, how does that how how does that Well, of course, it's we want the research to work. And we want it to show that we move the needle, but we were one component of a, of a large study. So we recognize that we're not, you know, although the results don't fall on the backs of the transplant ambassadors, um, that it's, it was a multi-pronged study. Hospitals had varying degrees of involvement with their ambassadors. The hospitals where they had a lot of involvement with TAP, I think we saw some great improvements, but that wasn't up to us to, it was always up to them. Oh, that's actually a good point. Did you guys look at that? Were there individual centers that really, where the intervention was meaningful or beneficial? There are certainly centers where the intervention, we feel from a TAP perspective, um, worked a lot better. There were, there were hospitals that had a lot of TAP ambassadors that ambassadors didn't continue in the program because there was no, there was no work buy-in. for them. There was no cooperation from the hospital. Maybe Joel, again, just to emphasize I don't think there's any other jurisdictions able to track now the journey like we are in a coherent way, like we presented in this in this report. To my knowledge, there's no other place to do that. But I'd be interested in what you all think. I know we're like we've lived and breathed this study and this intervention for many, many years. What do you all feel having now read it? Uh, what do you think's useful and I think there's challenges to it. I think I think this is a far more complex problem than just these interventions, and I, and and it's only one branch of how we need to proceed. So this is something that probably is worthwhile to a- adopt as um, you know some level of this methodology. You know, having an ambassador program, having um, more rigorous quality improvement um, and educational resources, but that's not going to fix it. I mean, you also have to, it, it's just it's just far too complex to think that you're really going to move the needle as much as you'd like to do it. I don't think that it's um, a practice that was for nothing. I think it was a valuable practice. And I think probably it's made a difference for some patients and maybe less so for others. But in the grand scheme of things, it's one part of the puzzle. AC, what do you got? Yeah, I agree with that. I think 
There's probably so many different things that we need to do. I think the, the patient experience and the ambassador program is really valuable. And I think there's probably things that we just can't, either can't or, or can, but didn't measure that that has a significant impact on, you know, be that like hope for patients on dialysis to receive a transplant one day, which I think is much more difficult to measure, but actually incredibly, I, I think, meaningful you know, does it kind of improve how they're doing kind of post-transplant to feel like they have that support system when they're going through difficult things or difficult times? Does it, you know, but I think I agree, there's probably also other things that we need to do to, to move the needle. So I think it's still worthwhile. And I think obviously you guys feel like it's worthwhile, otherwise this wouldn't be continuing. And, and I agree that it is. Um, and I think just the question is, what else can we do? And what else do we need to do? to really move the needle and, and help get more donors and help, you know, get That's more exactly transplants right. going and, and all of That's these exactly types of things, it. you know, so. And what else should we measure? You know, what, what other things are important for this? Yeah. Thing? And I think there's, you can measure a lot of things in the end, you got to get yeah. more transplants. Like, like I get that it's a process and we want to move people along, but it doesn't matter if they're not yeah. getting the transplant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's incredibly disappointing. Uh, again, the results are incredibly disappointing, but I think we have learned you guys have learned a lot, um, which is useful. I think this is establishing a useful framework to test the next intervention. I, I hear that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's nice to have the transplant ambassadors uh, and it's, it's probably seen as valuable. But if we did not move the needle, should we be testing this, the transplant ambassador 2.0 with some other intervention before we spend money? These things are expensive, right? Uh, I know uh, transplant dialysis is way more expensive. But still, right, these, these interventions take time, they take effort, and, and we could be using it in something else, which was more effective, perhaps. This is the reason we do trials. We cannot do the trial and say, hey, we still believe in the intervention, despite the trial being negative. You have to accept the results well, of the trial. Well, and that brings up something that Swap and I were talking about before this, po- this podcast began, is that 2023 has absolutely been the year of the pragmatic trial. And what, what did we have? We had no stone that was negative. We had chlorothalidone versus hydrochlorothiazide that was negative. We had torsamide versus furosemide, which was negative. We had mitemp that was negative. And now we've got uh, this trial here, which was negative. And you start to wonder, is there something about these pragmatic trials that can't get to significant? Oh, we just did the diuretic trial with the, with the, 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 with the checking the sodiums after giving diuretics, another pragmatic trial that was no, that showed no difference in the outcomes that they chose to measure. You know, I'm a, I mean, you got to be seeing this drumbeat of negative pragmatic trials. And does it, does this shake your belief in this methodology at all? I, well, I think actually there are a lot of neutral trials. So um, I wouldn't say that it's pragmatic or not. I think if you're looking at a trial, whether it's explanatory or pragmatic, I think you have to look at other kind of quality features. Are you getting a good adherence to the allocated therapy? Is there a good separation between the groups? Are you getting good complete follow up? Sure. Are you getting all those things? Are the co-interventions being similarly applied? Is there, you know, is the, did the randomization, was it uh, the integrity sound? Like looking at all these things are the most important things. So uh, I'm less concerned that the methodology is somehow masking a beneficial effect that we missed. Uh, I think it's showing that the intervention didn't work more. And I trust the results because of the methodology, the critical appraiser criteria for trials apply to both explanatory and pragmatic trials. So if you feel that this is high quality, then it's high quality whether it's pragmatic or not. I think one of the, it's more likely, though, in pragmatic of trials, 
you sometimes will get less adherence to the allocated therapy because you often don't have resources to uh, implement. You don't have often coordinated until so right. But then that would that will show up. If that doesn't happen, then that could be a reason for it. I think we do need to do more trials. I think that this is a complex area. I think we have to stand behind the results. But we're all committed to doing better. So whether that's to try to further optimize certain aspects of the intervention and then ultimately test it again. So, so if you had to do another, sorry, if you had to do another, you know, follow-up trial to this, I, I won't ask you what the intervention or the fifth intervention is going to be, but how, how much did this cost? Is it going to be possible? Yeah. Like, like this is a pretty cost-effective trial. So the intervention was supported because the Ontario Renal Network was already committed to doing something in the space. The ad is that we wanted to test it in a, in a robust evaluation framework. But this happens all the time. Like You can imagine a lot of jurisdictions are trying to increase access to transplant, and they're doing a whole bunch of things uh, because this is so important. And we just happened to test the trial. So the actual trial cost, you know, it might have been one, 1.5 million. And I think we could have done it far less. We had to work through a lot of methodologic issues in this. But the intervention is being delivered by someone else, in this case, a government agency. Mm-hmm. Right. And then Sue, and then Sue had this wonderful volunteer workforce that probably had you know tens of thousands of person hours that were all voluntary, which was just so impressive and amazing that people felt so passionate about this. So, so it would be you know possible to do an enact 2.0 potentially. Is that something you guys are thinking about, or is it too early to? Well, I think we're taking a step back again. We're doing the process evaluation. There's a protocol out there, really, to just understand more about the components. Uh, do you want to do more high touch? This is more system level. Uh, some of the things I described where there's some benefits, maybe more high touch related things. Do you like take a certain person and then really just really work with them, that individual in a major way? Maybe, maybe it's not cluster, maybe it's individual patient randomized. So. But I, I, I do think that we should hold ourselves to high standards in saying what works and doesn't work. Because I think many of them call, I've seen many things where if you had attested in another way, you might have said this worked. And I, I do feel, stand behind the fact that we, we did um, test in a very rigorous way. Mm-hmm. The one thing to be said about pragmatic trials is they're generalizable. <laughs> they are definitely they're generalizable. They're generalizable. <laughs> really well said, Ahmed. Yeah. Excellent. We'll move on to tubular secretion swap. What you got? So I'm actually uh, reading, sorry, listening to and watching at the same time a really old book. It's called The Time Traveler's Wife came out a few years ago, but I never came around to, you know, I read the description. It's like a romantic novel. That's not my a uh, cup of tea. So I never uh, started reading it. And then I was driving uh, my uh, kid, uh, sorry, dropping my kid off from Waterloo and driving back. And this was one of the audible books that was available. And I started listening and it's really, really interesting. So it's, it's a, it is a romantic novel, uh, but in the, the husband can time travel and he time travels very suddenly. It's, it doesn't happen when he wants to. So it jumps in and out of her life when she's a little kid, when she's, you know, at a different age. So the, Science part, just thinking through that is is, is super interesting. Uh, and it's also available. I don't know exactly which channel, but it's also streaming on somewhere. So The Time Traveler's Wife. Time very, Traveler's very Wife. Who's the author? Nice. And come on, Swap, you're a romantic. Come on, we all know that. <laughs> who's, the, who's the author, Swap? I, I don't even Don't remember. even know the will... author. That good. Okay, excellent. Sophia, what you got? Uh, as you guys know, I'm a big fan of sci-fi and fantasy and all that fun stuff. Um, So I just got done watching at least the end of this so basically wherever we've ended on a on a series of a, of a show called the the wheel of time and i don't know if you guys have, but it's by uh, two different authors like one 
author started it and then died. And then another author came in and finished it off. So it's a whole book series as well. I'm watching it right now. Um, But I plan on asking for the book series for Christmas, which I've never done, ask for a book for Christmas, but I'm excited to read it. Anyways, it's a lot of fun. And this last season was the best. And I was um, just waiting with bated breath for every episode. And I would have to wait an entire week. So I I do recommend it if that's your sort of if you, that's your jam, and I'll tell you how the book series goes when I get it. Yeah. So, so I read the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are fifteen books, I think. Robert Jordan wrote mm-hmm. them, and and Brandon Sanderson finished them. Oh, Brandon Sanderson. And the books are wonderful. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. He finished the last book and a half, and he wrapped it up very nicely. Uh, the books were phenomenal, uh, and I was very underwhelmed with season one. Uh, but you're right, season two is really well done. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm back watching it. Uh, you will you will enjoy the books. They are really Wheel good. of Time by on mm-hmm. Amazon Prime. Is that correct? Yeah, excellent. Susan, what do you got? Okay, well, if you're looking on Netflix for something to watch, and you would never probably select this otherwise, but um, the woman who loved giraffes is about uh, a professor from the University of Waterloo who was actually probably the preeminent early researcher on giraffes, and because where else would a giraffe researcher come from than where they're indigenously populated Waterloo, Ontario, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that makes total sense. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't think it was. Swap, your son is at University of Waterloo, right? Uh, he's at uh, Laurier, uh, which is in Waterloo. Which is in Waterloo. It's, it's, it's a sister, sort of a sister university okay. in Waterloo. Excellent. Yeah. So he should learn, take a class on giraffes. <laughs> Apparently it's a, a I, I let him know. personal expertise. <laughs> Okay, so that what it's what, what's the name of the, the show again? Susan? It's just a one. It's not a series. It's one. It's a movie. The woman who loved giraffes, and actually, she's- woman who loved giraffes on Netflix. On Netflix, it's a book on on giraffe biology. Anyway, very interesting. Okay, Amit, what do you got? I won't say as much science fiction because last time you were talking about House of the Dragon, and here Sophie's talking about another science fiction. And the thing I'm watching Netflix as a side is is the Gentleman Burglar, Lupin. It was kind of, it's kind of an interesting series. Watched, Ooh, my wife's I watched a few of them. They're kind of interesting. But what I've been watching more is like geopolitical tensions in the world. So as you know, major Ugh, wars. But it's horrible. Also, what's happened recently, I was scheduled actually to go to India. I haven't traveled uh, very much outside of North America since the pandemic. But in December, I was scheduled to go to India. I'm a Canadian citizen. So that India is no longer allowing Canadians uh, mm-hmm. Into India because of uh, visa, they're not. They're not. Uh, so that just happened a few weeks ago. So, wait. So you have an Indian, you have a Canadian passport, and you cannot go to India now. Yeah, so I was born in Canada. You're not issuing no, visas. My roots are my family is from India, but India recently uh, d- is not allowing Canadians to get visas to travel to India. Oh my but God! It's the, yeah, it's the global uh, binational conflict that i would not have predicted happening would not have predicted that we didn't have that on my bingo card for 2023 india canadian violence okay wow sorry about that amit ac what do you got uh so in terms of things i've been watching i've just been watching the eagles absolutely dominate this football season go birds and then i just (laughs) and then i just (laughs) And then this weekend, I just got back. This is a little bit work related, but it's it's personal. But I just got back from San Diego um, from uh, the Alport Syndrome Foundation meeting, Alport Connect, um, which was just really awesome to see. Honestly, it was it was really enjoyable to be at and just kind of watch a whole group of people kind of come together: patients, kids, physicians, researchers. Um, 
you know, I think those types of things are, are always amazing. And I learned so much from the people that are there. And I was very happy to be a part of it. And perhaps my favorite part of it, as many wonderful things as there were, and as many incredible things as I learned as I met a 10 year old who was there for the first time. She wants to be, she told me she wants to be a kidney doctor when she grows up. And I said, that's amazing. You could be my colleague one day. And I said, actually, you could be my boss one day. And she looks me up and down and she just goes, yeah, you know what? I could. And I, (laughs) (laughs) she sized you up and she said, yeah, she did. And I told her parents, I said, you know what? I like the way that you are raising this girl, that she has decided that she can grow up and not only be a doctor and be a kidney doctor, but that she can be the boss. And so I, I really liked it. That was my, that was probably one of my favorite moments of the whole thing. Okay. If you are listening to this podcast on the day that it is released at seven o'clock, At the Philadelphia Winery, we are recording another live podcast where we're going to go through and we're going to do a live draft of the uh, late-breaking, high-impact clinical trials. And I wonder, you know, Sophia, are you gonna are you gonna draft uh, are you gonna draft this study right here? This could have been this impactful one, so. I have to see what comes out. <laughs> uh, wow. Oh, that's a rough one. She's shot across the bow right there. <laughs> Sophia always gets the first draft, and I don't think she's picking this one. I don't think it's happening, buddy. <laughs> we don't know what the... Oh, my gosh. We, 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 that's right. Anything can happen. So, uh, Philadelphia Winery, if you're in Philadelphia. Now, if you're not listening to this podcast and the day that it's released, you missed it. Okay? You'll have to get catch it on the podcast. Thank you, everybody. This has been great. I had a really good time doing this. Stop the recording now.